team. Yeah, come here and be seven years younger. 2014, yeah, 2014 was a good year. Exactly. That should be their their tourism campaign. Fuck 2020 and 2021. Come back to 2014. Yeah. Come back to Ethiopia, where it's still 2014. Yeah. They have exactly. to redo 2022, 2021. Well, we may skip it, right? <laughs> yeah. learn, learn from the West and skip it, right? Um, one of actually the the the, the oldest and the best tour company. It says actually come visit Ethiopia and become seven years younger. That's what it says. <laughs> okay, one minute past the top of the hour. Okay, <laughs> I'm daydreaming about come back to 2014. Tired. What were you doing in 2014? Where were you? 2014. Wasn't that what was that seven years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, that was when Stockholm was really starting to kick ass, you know, just, just starting to kick ass. That yeah, video that I sent to you, Tyler, was uh, you in 2014, I think, when you yeah. were given the pitch advice, right? Yeah. The startups? Yeah. Did you have coco and coconut beach then how you can go back, uh, yeah. How you can go back and invest all those successful fintechs now? <laughs> yeah, that would, I God, can you imagine going back to Stockholm in 2014? If I had just invested in the startups that were pitching at my monthly events, holy shit. Oh my and, god. And, that's what, and kept that's your yeah, bitcoins. Right? <laughs> yeah, I I don't know what, I think you on the return rate you'd be better off investing in the startups at the tech meetup, the monthly tech meetup. Um cuz like nearly all the unicorns pitched there when they were raising their their uh angel rounds or A rounds. So uh oh more more Keep an eye out for friends in the audience. Welcome back and a very happy Friday. We had a, a fun session when we met uh, about eight hours ago. And let's go ahead and jump into the headlines as usual. Before we do, anyone burning with something hot and juicy? Anything juicy? Crazy? Wild? The, uh, the, date, the date between Uncle Xi and Uncle Joe? The, uh, they have a date up? They've set up a date? <laughs> I guess it's a Zoom, Zoom date, I guess. Oh, they have a Zoom date. That's cool. I think they said in a couple oh, of days. Oh, is it phone yeah. call? Next week, yeah. That's good. I would well, love... Vaccine mandates. I, I think you're going to cover that for sure. I think we are going to cover that. Um, but the first one at the top of the hour here is that Epic is now asking Apple to reinstate its Fortnite developer account in South Korea after a passage of a bill forcing app stores to allow alternative payment systems. So following the passing of a bill in Korea allowing alternative payment systems on the app store, Epic Games has asked Apple to reinstate their developer account. And this makes perfect sense because Epic is the maker of Fortnite. Everybody who makes an app on the Apple App Store, every single app. If you want to have an app in the Apple ecosystem, you need to have a developer account. Just like everybody has an Apple account when you have an iPhone. Uh, you have your Apple ID, which is an email address and a password that you need to log in to get into the App Store. Well, the developers have a separate account called a developer account to upload their apps to the App Store. And they have to pay a hundred or two hundred bucks a, a year for that developer account. Apple 
was getting really pissed off at Epic, the maker of Fortnite, uh, when Epic was basically, you know, setting up this massive lawsuit saying, hey, Apple, this whole game where we have to pay you 30% and and we can't charge our customers directly, that you, Apple, force yourselves into the middle of that transaction and you insert yourself into that transaction and you take the money from our users and you keep 30% and then you pay us, that whole thing you're doing, yeah, that's a whole bunch of bullshit, Apple. And we don't even think it's legal. And we're going to take your ass to court and we're going to find out if it's legal. And you know what? Turns out, looks like Epic's going to win this one, as I predicted, you know, when it was announced, you know, two, three months ago. And I have a different take. I have a different take on this one that could get really, really interesting. Hold that thought. Hold it. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. I just want to unpack the headline and then we'll get into your hot take here. So the the point is Korea. Well, um, this is happening in America. This is a massive one of the biggest lawsuits in that tech has ever had happening in America right now. But because Epic is basically leading the charge on behalf of all app developers. So if this works the way that Epic hopes it does, all the apps in the apps or millions of app developers are going to benefit because what will happen is uh, the judge will say, you know what, Epic, you're right. Uh, you should be able to charge the customers directly. So, hey, Apple, from now on, um, apps, you need to give apps the ability to charge their um, app users directly. The in-app payment system. Apple cannot enforce their own monopoly of an in-app payment system, which they currently do. And Korea came out of nowhere and said, you know what, America, you're going to take a year on that crazy lawsuit? I'll tell you what, we're going to get it done this weekend. And by the way, we just did it. How's them apples? And uh, we just ruled that uh, what's going to take you, you know, a few years and a whole lot of craziness and a ridiculous legal system, and you guys just draw things out, endless appeals, and blah, 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 blah. Guess what? We just went to the government and to the uh, parliament we just passed this thing hot off the press. Boom, it's a law. Uh, in Korea, apps can charge directly to their users, and Apple cannot enforce a monopoly of their own in-app payment system. You ha- they have to allow developers a way to charge it directly. So Epic, by the way, Korea almost certainly never would have done that if it wasn't for Epic's lawsuit against Apple in America. So now you know why this is such an interesting headline that Epic is asking Apple to reinstate its developer count in Korea. Because in Korea, we already won the lawsuit. In Korea, we can uh, charge the users directly. We've done nothing wrong. Why is our account, our developer account, uh, still blocked or frozen or what have you, which Apple did as a kind of a punishment to Epic for the lawsuit? Well, well, partly, no, well, no, it's because Epic actually was charging users directly, and Apple's like, you can't do that, and if you continue to do that, we're going to ban you from the app. Not only are we going to remove your app from the app store, and, and well, first, we're not going to allow you to re-upload new versions of your app. And to stop you, the only way we can stop you from updating your app is to freeze your developer account, which is what they did. So now they're saying, hey, unfreeze our developer account, you greedy bastards. Korea just kicked you in the you-know-what. 
and America's going to do it too. Hold on to your hat, Apple. You're about to get the poo-poo knocked right out of you. What's your take, Johan? My take is that having an uh, I since I I work with, with developing other things for, for for the app stores, the thing is that having a developer account doesn't mean you get your applications cleared in a fast way Very to, true. to get published. And the thing is here that since they have been banned and thrown out, it might be that all the old purchases are gone. So you need to create a new application ID, which gives by hand the automatic update won't work. Because what Apple could actually claim that this is a total new product for you. You need to go to your users and say, hey, you need to download Fortnite 2.0. Uh, and uh, which gives that the old user base is gone and there won't be an out update where they can get access to the new EO store. You are, um, you need to reinstall it from the beginning. You need to find it. If you have a, a, a family group like I have for my kids, they have to have it cleared by me again. Even the game might be free, but they still need to have it authenticated by me. You need to log into iCloud and do all the things over again. So by just saying that we need our developer account, yeah, okay, you can publish it and put it up for authentication to have it put up on the store. There is nothing in the rules there that it can take less than a month to actually get it through. And they can get really, really picky with details. They can get picky over spelling in, in different parts of the documentations, in your security policy. And God forbid, if they find that you're mining data or something like that of the users, oh, this can go on until Christmas. You want done. So Apple has now responded. And Apple says it won't let Epic Games back into the App Store unless Epic agrees to play by the same rules as everybody else. And Tyler, I was looking at the stats. It's in, in Korea, because of Samsung, they only own less than 20% of the market in, yeah. China, in Korea. So they don't really care about that. It's the smallest market they have in a developed nation. Yeah. Apple. So it says about Apple won't let Epic back into the App Store unless they play by the rules like everyone else. Earlier today, Epic asked Apple to reinstate its developer account so that it could re-release the iOS version of Fortnite in South Korea, which recently passed a bill forcing Apple and Google to allow alternate in-app payment systems. Apple, however, maintains it's under no obligation to let Epic in the App Store at all. Oh! <laughs> oh! <laughs> Ouch! We didn't see this one coming. Hey, Apple, uh, the, 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 Korean, the Korean government says, hey, Apple, if you have apps in your App Store, you have to let them, um, you know, charge their users directly. Apple's like, got it. No problem. If they're in our app store, you mean, right? Yes. Okay, right. So if they're in our app store, of course, we're going to have to do that. Noted. And then <laughs> Epic says, great. This that... is just brilliant. <laughs> now go ahead and let, let us back in. And Apple says, no, <laughs> you can't come back in the app store. Uh, that's funny. Uh, Apple, however, that maintains it. It's, yeah, un it's under no obligation. <laughs> yes. So, it, yeah, that, well, this is quite funny. As we've said all along, we would welcome Epic's return to the App Store if they agree to play by the same rules as everyone else. An Apple spokesperson says in a statement to The Verge, Epic has admitted to breach of contract 
And as of now, there's no legitimate basis for the reinstatement of their developer account because we're an American company and they're an American company. So that court, that, that, that new thing going on in Korea, that ain't got nothing to do with us because we're not Korean, nor are they. So thank you very much. That has not, no relevance on us legally whatsoever. So interesting point. The South Korean legislation, um, has not yet gone into effect, but if and when it does, according to Apple, that wouldn't have any bearing on the company's process for approving developer accounts. Until Epic agrees to comply by Apple's App Store's review guidelines, Apple isn't going to consider its request. Fortnite, one of the most popular video games in the world, has been un un unavailable on the App Store since August of last year. Apple ultimately terminated Epic's developer account in response to a Fortnite update that dodged the App Store's in-app payment requirement in order to get around paying Apple the 30% cut. Epic then sued Apple and went to trial in May with the verdict yet to come. I'm I'm realizing now in the US like however much money Fortnite has, you know, lost as a result of not being in the App Store you're talking billions of dollars. Like Apple's going to if they lose this suit and again I, I'm I'm still of the mind that uh, Epic's going to win this, that they're going to have to pay the, the fees that Epic would have got had they stayed in the store. Plus interest, plus, uh, plus, plus, plus. It's going to be uh, quite an expensive uh, decision. So interesting update on that drama, which we've been tracking for, for a few months. Yes, Eamon. What What's happening with the U.S. Open Apps Market Act? Remember the one that they're working on since I think last month, where they're trying to allow uh, customers to sideload apps uh, so they could su subvert the app stores, like Google and I think and Apple, right? Or don't like it? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know. Is a short answer. Yeah, let me quickly skim up through them because I look. thought it was going to be a big. They were yeah, they probably are lobbying it hard, but I'm not sure what's happening there. Let me okay, the status. So the next one is. That Kuo, who's the the the, the Apple leaker uh, of kind of the, the the number one leaker of all secrets of Apple, Kuo says that Apple has resolved its Apple Watch Series Seven production issues and will start mass production mid to late September, with shipping set for late September, which is a very key issue because Apple's going to on Tuesday, so just just after the weekend here. They're going to have a live stream event at the end of our meeting here in Tech News Around the World, where we meet starting from 7 a.m. to generally from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. Pacific. The Apple annual live stream event starts at 10 a.m. Uh, 10 a.m. Pacific. So perfectly right as we end our, our Tech News Around the World, they start their live stream. So we have an extra hour or two where we watch the live stream and then we discuss everything that was shared during the live stream as we've done in the past. It's a lot of fun, I have to say. And um, really looking forward to it, where they're going to announce the new iPhone 13, and the uh, we're going to get to see this uh, new Apple Watch Series 7. And that's why this headline is of such an issue. It was revealed, I don't know, four days ago, that Apple was having supply chain issues uh, with the watch. And that's a big problem when you're supposed to be announcing it on September 14th. And so when they announce it on September 14th, they want to be able to tell people when they can order it and when they can expect to have it delivered. That's just what Apple's done 
every year for since I don't know iPhone one or so, where they say okay, uh, you can order it this Friday and uh, shipments start you know November first or what. That's generally how it goes at these events. So Apple likes to ha- announce the dates because they want the press to then who the whole the whole event is meant for the press who then share it out to the rest of the public. So they want to have the dates locked down and if it was unclear and now it seems like they have some clarity about it on a related headline the gentleman who manages the whole apple watch um kevin he's now there was a separate headline that we read recently that he's been promoted to um appointed to the uh, oversee the as head of apple car which internally they call titan because there was a recent departure from the apple car project of Doug Field who went over to Ford that we read that headline maybe a day or two ago there's also another high profile app well not nearly as high profile as Kevin Lynch but uh, the does anyone remember our friend Ashley over at Apple who was taking to her personal Twitter account to share internal conversations with her bosses and (laughs) causing all kinds of headaches for people at Apple HQ she's now been let go so the headline is that Apple has fired senior engineer program manager Ashley Giovic for allegedly leaking confidential information. Giovic has been tweeting about workplace issues. And um, let's take a, well, she's probably waking up over there in California right about now, but it's going to be a, an interesting Twitter account to follow here in the next couple of days. I, I get the feeling. So uh, we we will see. Um, yep. They, they, they found a way to... Uh, for that the lawyers uh, agreed it was a safe scenario to let her go because that was a prickly pair. That one, boy, oh boy! It, they Father, had, yes. Uh, why do you think Facebook didn't don't announce like Apple and uh, Apple have it all structured? And uh, is there? Do you have a? You mean an annual set date? Yeah, I mean, Facebook, like sure. Facebook just announced it couple of days when they knew apple were going to announce it. right you mentioned this before right but how come they can do that apple is very seasonal and the supply chains they work try and work on a very regulated annual cycle right where the all of the uh companies that they work with in their supply chain they try and get them also to operate on this very precise annual schedule where how, how much of an improvement can you make on the camera for you know 2021 how much improvement can you make on the battery for 2021 how much improvement can you make on the you know antenna the 5g antenna for 2021 and so they f- tell them in advance you know they're already working on the iphone 16 already right and it's like there's this whole um conveyor belt of process and all that you really need to coordinate the dates on these things to make the to make the magic all come together and so they just make sure all of their suppliers uh all coordinate around you know knowing hey the 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 phone needs to be announced on this day so it needs to be ready this thing needs to be ready one month before so your parts need to be ready one month before that if you want to be considered a potential part in the next iphone and basically it's that it's like if you have if you are a company who's making a part that could go into the iphone 
Well, that means that's billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars for you if they choose your battery or your glass or your speaker or your microphone or your chip or whatnot, your memory. So, of course, they're, they're going to tell you, listen, we announce our phones first week of September every year like clockwork. We need to have the final uh, prototype version ready one month before that. You need to have your part ready exactly 6.5 months before that. Got it? <laughs> you cool with that? Of course you are. Great. So welcome to you know, welcome to the circus. And every year we will you know make sure that you tell us what you're able to do. Sometime around mid March, around March 13th, we're going to need to know uh, what you're able able to do. So it's it's already kind of a nice, um, steady system that they have in place. And so they're, they're it's not very unlikely to change in the foreseeable future. And they're the hardware giant, right? I mean, they control the market. They actually set the tone of the devices. It's like fashion, fashion week sort of thing. They set the yeah. tone for everything. I, I had a clothing company, so I could speak to that. That's 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 a very. It's a, actually a really good um, parallel uh, point. Yeah, uh, in fashion, we well, you have the the, the fashion shows. Where you have New York Fashion Week, we call them Fashion Weeks now, generally, and. In, in America, you have really high-end fashion, which involves Fashion Week. And then you have the people who aren't, you know, the these mega brands that are the... I had one of these brands that we sold to Forever 21 and Wet Seal and Urban Outfitters and Nordstrom's and shit like that. So that's kind of, you know, the, the rest of the industry, not high fashion. And even with with our level of fashion, the trade shows are already known a year in advance. And for us, the big show in America is called the Magic Show. It's in Las Vegas twice a year. And you already know when it is. And you know you're going to be there on the show floor with your booth, meeting all of your existing accounts and buyers, and hopefully whining and dining future accounts and buyers. And so you, you're going to have your whole new, what we call your line, and your line sheet ready to show them at that event on that day. So then you've got to ha you know have your designs ready for manufacture your prototypes you know three weeks before that, so that your sewers and everyone have the three weeks to uh, make the your samples, so that you can bring your samples to the event. So yeah, similar thing. It's known well, well, well in advance, and it's usually you know the the main event is what dictates the uh the calendar for the whole process well, they, and plus they always place themselves like couture right i mean everything from the brands they select the bracelets the companies they ally with and also another thing too is don't they deliver i mean they actually allow you to buy immediately in a week's time right compared to the other companies that sort of have to you know uh, wait and see and exactly. wait for the big giant uh, to make their move first before they make any major investments because apple's already got as Tyler was saying, like has got its whole engine oiled beautifully to deliver, while these yeah. guys have to do whatever they can to survive. Yeah, I mean that's why Tim Cook is king at Apple. He's the supply yeah. chain king. Yeah, Re real artist ship is is what is what Apple's all about. You know, is that they know that it doesn't matter until you ship units, and that's why they're so ruthless about their rollout. I mean, no one in the and world their, and their privacy. Yeah, no one in the mm. world announces a product that no one, you know, the leakers see it, but no one in the world announces a product the way they do. Um, and Heyman, you're so brilliant. It is the fashion show for, for 
for, for well, here, modern fashion. There's another there. funny there's another funny point that often gets made in, in a conversation like this, which is the rest of the industry, including Microsoft, including Samsung, including you name it, they all bundle together at CES in Las Vegas in January. That's their big show each year. Just like we, the fashion show has the magic show in Vegas at the Sands Convention Center, so does uh, tech, the, the consumer and electronic and show called since, CES. And ever since Apple stopped going to CES, Correct. they took the ball in their own hands Yep. and now completely control the narrative. And it's, it's kind of embarrassing because, you know, Samsung, they don't realize that Apple's, the, Apple's probably the only company that will pump the iPhone 12 up until 11.59 midnight on Friday when the iPhone 13 comes out the next minute. You know, like, they are ruthlessly efficient at dragging out the last second of profit on their products and then ruthlessly efficient at taking away any steam that any competitors have in that, like, two, three-week period. Because usually they, they center around the Apple events, right? The Samsung used to do it, and it seems like they gave up. Um, little little historical thing. The CES show in Vegas, they take it takes. It's one of the biggest shows in Vegas, and it takes over the whole city. And it's every big tech company you ever heard, with one very notable exception, is Apple. It's like the only company that's not there. And I go to CES. Cal had to do be at CES. Cal is one of the big big buyers at CES, and every tech company is begging Cal to come into their booth and write an order. You know, I mean, the biggest tech companies are like, sweet Jesus, Best, Best Buy is the bell of the ball at CES. Because if you get Best Buy as a customer, oh boy, that's, that's as good as it gets. It's like being a fashion brand and getting, you know, H&M or, you know, somebody like that to, you know, write an order. So um, it's a very big deal. Best Buy is a huge, huge player in that ecosystem and perhaps the biggest in media mart in Europe. Um, kind of their equivalent in Europe. So the I went. I, I usually go to CES. Cal, of course, goes to CES. And at CES, by the way, for those who don't know, is many people believe was the triggering COVID event in America. So it'd be two years ago, January, uh, because everyone from all over the world flies in for that, including a lot of folks from China flying to that. It's a huge, there's a huge Chinese presence at CES every year, and they've had a. Consi- wasn't the Washington one the first one? The Washington in terms of a city, right? yeah, the first COVID oh. case in America might have been in Washington. Yeah, right. I, I'm talking about first like super spreader event in America, ah. um, which would have been. Um, they the actually, two- they actually kind, of, and I need to get my facts right, but I think they traced the the first super spreader event to a medical expo. Ah, yeah, it was, be- in, it was in Boston at a biotech yeah, company. I think it was here, a biogen thing. In, in surprisingly Boston, small event of only a couple hundred people, but eighty percent of the people were infected mm. through that one event, and and really leaked out all over Boston, which was hard hit. So. I was actually in CES, but then I was at Davos and spoke with the. We lost you, Cam. Can you hear? Can yeah. you hear me now? Yeah. So. So I was actually at CES, but a month later I was at Davos and I spoke with the U.S. ambassador to Switzerland. That he said, "I just came from Wuhan and there's this, you know, uh, flu things, but I'm okay." And I actually shook hand with him. Um, <laughs> I have a funny CES story. I went one year with the team from Engadget, which is one of the big tech blogs, 
and Engadget uh, was they get access to everybody there. All the CEOs of all the big tech companies want to be in Engadget, especially at CES because they have big announcements that they're making at CES. So we got to interview Bill Gates at CES and Ryan uh, <laughs> uh, Ryan Block from Engadget. It was on short notice. It wasn't known. You know, they didn't. It wasn't really planned. And we were setting up cameras to do this interview with Bill Gates, and he would. Uh, it was kind of a surprise. He was super nervous and wasn't fully prepared or whatever, and it didn't. Really, <laughs> we kind of screwed up the whole interview. Um, but it was a uh, boy. Is that a fun thing to do to go to CES with Engadget and uh, get to meet everybody and all the parties and everything? It was a lot of fun. So the next biggest headline is also about Apple, that Apple says Apple Music will start using Shazam's technology to identify and compensate DJs and record labels and artists involved in making of DJ mixes. Apple Music announced today that it's, that it's created a process to properly identify and compensate all the individual creators involved in DJ mixes. And here's the Engadget story on it. <laughs> DJ mixes are mostly absent from premium streaming services. That's mostly due to the fact that properly sorting out the royalties for all of the samples is a nightmare. You can find them on a platform like SoundCloud, but these songs can have literally hundreds of rights holders between the DJ, the original artist, the labels, and even the festival or venue from which it's being streamed or where it was performed. To remedy the problem and to massively expand the amount of DJ mixed content on streaming platforms, Apple, or on their streaming platform, Apple has worked with both major and independent labels on a system that identifies and directly pays rights holders on a mix. What's more, the company leveraged Shazam's technology to do it for Apple Music, and Apple explains that it's a new tool that will let the streaming service ID and compensate individual creators in a DJ mix, even artists who record any sample tunes, it's also the first major streaming service to do so. In collaboration with DJs themselves, alongside festivals, clubs, and promoters, curators, and independent labels, Apple says it will. it's working with all the parties involved to ensure fair compensation. Apple says this will give DJ mixes a longer shelf life when it comes to revenue since individual tracks, collections, compilations, and even full festival sets will now be able to stream like studio albums on Apple Music. So it's a win for everybody. Hey, Tyler, isn't wow. Shazam owned by Apple? I think it. I think they did buy it, yeah. Yeah, so why would yeah. they... So you know, they're licensing from a subsidiary, I guess? Eventually, yeah. So, the I next... Think just, Ken, I think they're just flexing that other competitors can't do this because they have the core technology. So the the next... Tyler, yes, Aaron. I would add to the... Go. Just, just on the Apple Music, yeah. what I would say is Jack Dorsey, Square... Yeah. Acquiring title, yeah. NFTs, yeah. programmable smart contracts. Yeah. Like that, Apple Apple are trying to get there before Jack goes with Jay-Z. Yeah, po possibly. They're, they're still, if somebody does, a DJ does a set at Coachella or at Burning Man or what have you, and, you know, they bleed in together, you know, in the course of a two-hour set, they'll put together 60, 70 different tracks. Of different lengths and they're playing parts of songs not even the whole songs so the even even if on title for example title will become an nft marketplace those nfts will have audio content as part of those nfts and that's helpful for buying and selling of 
uh, fractional ownerships in songs or even entire songs um, or access to the right to listen to the song, stream the song. But in terms of tracking who's using the audio files, I, it'll be interesting to see if there's a way to utilize NFTs to do that. That would be very nice if it, if it could be done that well, way. It's all digital, right? Every, yeah. Everything everything you said is brilliant and everything there is digital. So as the DJ decides to play this track, it literally gets stamped on the chain there and then to say, this is the track I used. Pay that 0.000001% exactly. back to that, you know, royalties back to that. Um, you know, yeah, but the, what, well, the, the, the tricky bit that was uh, mentioned but kind of not emphasized in the Engadget article that I just read was Apple says that it, you know, had conversations and worked out arrangements with, and this is the key word, had conversations and worked out arrangements with uh, independent labels and big labels and independent artists who aren't on labels. That gets crazy fucking messy because you're going to have to debate and argue, okay, what if I use a three-second clip from James Brown? Does James Brown get played for the three seconds out of my two-hour set? Maybe he does. Yeah. Well, what? Okay, he he gets paid X amount. Call it X. Okay, now I used six seconds of Metallica. How many X do they get? Are we charging per second? Yeah. Okay, so we work out a per second payment system. Um, fine. Then uh, something like that, but something like that it was worked out. Apparently, it goes it goes it goes, it goes even deeper because. Because you have the mechanism that can observe the listening behavior and you have a mechanism for file tracking the file, you actually know who listened to what section of what song. So why does Metallica get six seconds if I never listened to it? That's an interesting right. point. What if I stopped streaming the two-hour DJ set after 20 minutes? Why does everyone in that DJ set after the 20-minute yeah, mark get compensated? I got in here to listen to Griffin. You know, I didn't get in here to listen. That's a really interesting point. Oh, wow. I didn't hadn't thought of that. Uh, I invited Gareth up here because Gareth uh, might be the best suited to... And, 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 and yeah. for me, and I'm sorry to pontificate, all the signals I'm hearing, CSAM, um, fast scanning of phones, indicates that Apple's got a really quick way to hash files and determine what's in there. And so this is also part of it. Yes, they now Chris, a way to get the, the Shazam hash in there. Right now, I'm, I'm, you know me, I'm no, I'm, no one's ever, you know, uh, no, you know, I'm an optimist, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a geek like anybody, but. What what happens when you're talking about songs that aren't on NFTs? This is great in in, in the far future when when everyone's on NFTs. But you're going some percentage of artists are going to say fuck NFTs, and more importantly, you're you're going to have a whole lot of record labels saying fuck NFTs. So what do you do? That's that's the bulk of recorded music is the record label music. Your Annika just joined the room. This is her speciality. She works with music. And another side note, I've done my fair share of mixing as well. And the thing is, hey, you don't use three-second clips. You use uh, 10 milliseconds or 20 milliseconds or 100 milliseconds. You, you catch a snare drum that you like in a, in a clip, but then, re then re reuse it 300 times during uh, the, the, the music you play. So... This it gets even, Johan, as you know, it gets even trickier than that, because as our friend, the other Chris, Chris Fornoff, when we talked about this eight hours ago, 
he mentioned Girl Talk. Girl Talk is notorious for taking a Radiohead song and a Bruce Springsteen song and mashing them up simultaneously in a way that Shazam has no idea what song that is. Yeah, it, does, again, it, it doesn't say Radiohead or Bruce Springsteen. It says a big hole. I have no clue what this is. <laughs> the thing is that when I find a snare drum that I like and sample, I usually alter it in some way, a higher pitch here. I use a compressor on some part of the, the, the wave frame as well. So it's actually not a pure sample of that snare drum that I stole from random campaign, random song. So, so this will get really, really, really tricky because you don't do long samples. Uh, Some do. Know, but not D- DJ, DJ sets do, though. DJ sets, they will play a minute of, you know, some Bon Jovi track, you know, and then go right into, you know, some James Brown beat or whatever. You know, that does happen. DJs do that all the time. But ty- yeah. I mean, ty- Shazam- this, is just, this is just IP. This is IP. This is the... The content creator has created this and it is signed that they are the owner of this, right? This is what this is what NFTs are all about. So it's it's I, cryptographically signed. I, and then if you happen to play part of that digital format, because we're all talking digital now. We're not we're not in the analog days anymore, we're in the digital days. And so that, that piece that's been played has been signed and tracked for. And all we're talking about here is a ledger system that follows IP. So we're just but, talking about blockchain and NFT. That's that that's not an NFT thing, right? So I mean that's that the first wave of blockchain rights stuff in music was exactly that, right? And I, and I think there's um there's definitely a conversation to be had about like kind of where this stuff collides with NFTs and blockchain and various other things. I don't really think that's what's happening in the in the Apple. Uh, well, no, it's not. He knows. He know. He he knows it's not. What he's saying is, why you know in the in the far distant future. NFTs are perfectly positioned to solve a lot of these problems, and he's right about that. The yeah, issue, the issue, yeah, the issue is that in the near term, it's going to be a while before the bulk of music is, um, you know, done through NFTs because the record labels and all historical music, I, I would f- imagine the record labels are going to be very resistant to putting their stuff into NFTs. Uh, I don't. I don't know. That's necessary. I, I think the same complexity with DJ mixes exists, which is rights and rights ownership, and how that is divided and fragmented uh, across rights owners. I think if they can find a payday, I think most most of the the major aggregators of rights right now will find a way to say yes. Um, I think there are things like fractional ownership. You're going to see like eToro type rights ownership models happening, where you know retail investment in rights, those sorts of things coming through. NFTs. I think definitely blockchain historically, you know, the the use case for blockchain to solve some of the rights problems that the music industry has is a known thing and, and failed previously exactly for the reasons you're discussing, um, Tyler, but principally, I think, because no one was ready um, to be able to solve that mess. I, I think the, the, the thing that the DJ mix um, point highlights is the technology bit's not that hard to solve. I mean, to many in many ways, you know, Shazam's already done it, right? I mean, you take an audio fingerprint of a song, and it can it can point to a, a piece of music, and music. that piece of music's already um, found and categorized. Categorized. The, the tricky bit is then, you know, how do you route that to the myriad rights owners that sit underneath? Especially when you start talking about um, not the record labels, but music publishers, where you have many, many owners. And then to the point about DJ mixes, you're you're then multiplying that by 
taking Yuan's point, you know, like hundreds, thousands of different rights. But Gareth, and... Gareth, that, that's, that's my point. That's that's where that's where smart contracts come in. That's what oh, NFTs are all yeah. about. Yeah, you're and right. The smart the smart mm, contracts. Aaron, you're, there, there's no doubt. NFTs are perfectly uh, a potential solution to a big problem that the the players themselves are not yet really understand how well suited NFTs are to solving this problem, and it, that's why it's going to take. It's it's almost like a solution exists, and the people who could benefit from that solution just generally don't yet really grok fu- yet. fully grok the potential of what's uh, you know how think, how it can be utilized. I think that yeah, and that friction structural, right? So yeah. I think Aaron, I totally agree with you. Systemically, they're, 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 yeah, I mean it's, it's like it's the systemic and structural problems so, that will slow it all down, which is what's interesting to see where money's flowing. I'll give you right. another. I'll give you another related so, example. Can I? Can I? Can I on that on that Tyler, before we come off that, and yeah. you, you know my background is, is finance, right? My background mm-hmm. is fintech. Yeah. Fintech is being disrupted right now with DeFi, right? Decentralized yeah. finance, based on exactly the same principles as music. Yeah. Like, it's no different. Yep. Well, I I had a meeting, and that was a dinner. I got a, I was fortunate enough to be invited to a dinner one time, in Hollywood with all of the record label presidents. And I used to have a I was on Capitol Records, but this was separate. This is after my whole meltdown with my music career, and I was in tech already. And it was I believe George from um, George Strompolis who had left. He was our manager at YouTube. And he had left to start his own company, Fullscreen, which Fullscreen plays a really big role in, in YouTube ecosystem, by the way, uh, as a, all of, a lot of the top talent on YouTube, on YouTube are a part of Fullscreen. So because George was the manager for all the top talent on YouTube, he was the first man, he was the exclusive manager for all the first paid artists like myself. In, and they were all based in L.A. generally. So he moved down to L.A. And that's why now YouTube has generally moved down to L.A. But. We went out to dinner with all the record labels and all the record labels are very interested in YouTube and how they get paid through YouTube. And YouTube's essentially a platform, not so different from Spotify, where there's a catalog. They want to get paid every time their music's played. They want to decide if you're allowed to have access to their content. They have these content libraries, as they call it, refer to them. And if you want the right to be able to stream digitally, digitally stream their content library well then you're gonna have to pay up and spotify did pay up and spotify had to give up equity in spotify in addition to paying a flat fee they have to give up equity in the company you see what i'm saying like that's they had to cough up a lot the record labels are like listen we're not only interested in getting a per stream payment we want a piece of the pie we want to own part of spotify if you want access to our content libraries and spotify agreed to that they didn't really have a choice so uh i say this because as we're having this conversation i said well yeah but you know there's dozens if not hundreds of apps that are also going to want access to your content libraries how long did it take you to negotiate it took spotify years to negotiate these contracts with these you know record music rights holders namely the labels but there's others as well so if it takes years for one app to get, and they didn't, they still don't have all the music that they would like to have. It took them until relatively recently to get the Beatles and Metallica because those are separate. So, um... my here's my point: is I'm telling the record labels, listen, if you really want to be smart, you make it super, super, super simple for the next hundred Spotify's to tap into your content libraries and 
make it's called an API. This is how tech does it. Like if you want access to all uh, with a good company that made a lot of money on content APIs, Getty Images. Getty Images has millions of awesome photos. If you want access to all of their millions of photos, you pay, you tap into their API, you pay a licensing fee, you magic, presto, done. One minute, took you five minutes, soup to nuts, not, not three years of flying internationally to meet with all these people and begging them to get access to their content. And I'm telling these guys, listen, you, you have Spotify, you have Apple Music and nobody else. And so it's to your advantage to make it super easy and don't try and pick the winner. You don't know who's really going to win the, the audio race. Let there be a million of them. Let them all fight each other. And you, to do that, you're going to have to API your content libraries and make it super, super simple, simple for me to build my Spotify competitor because I might be able to build a better mousetrap. And you don't know who's going to build the best mousetrap at the end of the day. And it's in a constant evolution anyways. So what happens when Spotify gets stale and the founder leaves and it's struggling? And you, what are you going to do then? You know, every 10, or, 10 years, figure out who's going to be the next Spotify? Yeah. Or, Tyler, with what decentralized finance is doing is it's removing the intermediary channels from that. And it's removing those platforms to enable anybody to be the company. So whether you want to do insurance or borrowing, you become the company in DeFi. And what they're saying here in music is you can do another within decentralized music you can say let the creators be the owners of them and let them come to a platform and they can negotiate the rights on the platform so that it bypasses those intermediaries in the middle yeah it, it's it's i you know you and you know aaron i you know i respect all that it's it would be easier to get the united states of america you know, to accept <laughs> Bitcoin as the official currency than to get the music labels to uh, embrace NFTs. I mean, it, it, I mean that, that's how difficult of a, you know, on paper, great idea, fantastic. And there's something to it. El Salvador did make it their currency. And maybe some small independent label actually will embrace I NFTs. I, I think, though, I think, though, that, you know, it's not to bring light to my, what I kind of brought up, but I think the ability, so... When you see an, a still image, right, it served one and done. There's no question about it. But content that needs to be consumed ephemerally or at another time, uh, there is a shelf life. There's not shelf life, but there's a, a delivered throughput, let's say. If a show's an hour long and I'm only, you know, you're, you're, we're seeing it in the show metrics, right? It's known as the uh, listen time. And so it's that listen time that's important. And what did the audience listen to at that time? And there's always been an intermediary kind of saying, this is what we think this is worth. You now have real ability to determine what's important, what the value of that importance is, and how many consumers are actually listening to it. So right now, if we were to observe this, you would see that there's a big drop in the audience and my revenue would be going down and you'd be like, Chris, we got to get this going along. Okay, next headline here. The next one is the big one, actually. Uh, Facebook launches $299 Ray-Ban Story smart sunglasses in six countries, including the U.S. Users can capture photo and video, listen to music, and take phone calls hands-free. Hands-on, and then they and then they stupidly say hands-on with Facebook and Ray-Ban's first pair of smart glasses starting Thursday, the first pair of smart glasses. And then... 
Harry McCracken of Fast Company did an interview with Mark Zuckerberg and shows photos and videos that he took. It's still the best uh, blog post uh, of anyone who's used them. So I'm tweeting that out right now for those who want to see. Um, Facebook glasses. I'm tweeting that out right now. There it goes. And um, have a little looky loo. And the main question is, who thinks they're going to buy them? I think Evan said he bought them while the live stream was still happening. If I re if I recall correctly, was that you, Evan? I did too. You I, did. I think it was Evan that did. I, I did. Well. I ordered. Uh, I ordered them. So <laughs> I I'll let the you buy button. Yeah. And then there was you basically had three choices between the Wayfarers and two other designs and that is that it or would there was also a color option or was was there a there size was, option there were a couple different couple different colors and different lens you know coatings and options and you provide your prescription and if if you uh, if you get your own lenses that you void the warranty so you have to kind of get the lenses through mm -hmm. Ray-Ban directly mm -hmm. cool well, did any sense? Did they give you an estimate of when you can expect to receive them? Not yet. Okay. But, uh, we shall see. but do let us know. And on a related funny tip, uh, moments later, Clubhouse announced their new glasses, which uh, we tweeted out a few hours ago. And it's on the official Clubhouse Twitter account. I'll find it again. It's just at twitter.com slash clubhouse. And let me read it to you. It's this is quite remarkable how these tech companies are just, you know, right on top of each other with these announcements. Uh, Clubhouse says, where did it go? There it is. Announcing. I'm tweeting it right now. There it goes. Announcing Clubhouse glasses. This incredible tech allows you to experience immersive audio without the distraction of physical appearance. And it looks like uh, Ewan McGregor in the photo wearing these new clubhouse glasses, which has a striking resemblance to a piece of black blindfold cloth that the, the Ewan has strapped over his eyes um, where he's not able to see anything at all. And uh, kind of they're, they're really focusing on the audio part of the of these glass experience. Kind of limiting on the visual part, notably limited on the visuals there's no buttons there's actually the cool thing about it is there's no batteries no charge the charge time's instantaneous uh but it doesn't no no wi-fi needed no actually no connectivity needed Last at all forever yeah so hey, um Tyler, yes i just checked my email my i sent you a screenshot of it on twitter it says that they should arrive at my house on the 16th ah yes i see it right now nice. oh. Yes, Ray, uh, so your order number, contact order number, delivery date, September 16th. That's very helpful. So just uh, less than a week away from now. There it is. Yeah. Maybe the difference well, is like I didn't order custom lenses. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm, I just yeah. A, yeah. If you order a prescription, that'd be probably different. Yeah. Tyler, there's kind of breaking news on, on Apple on the information now, which is uh, kind of what I... Uh, told you that I thought would uh, be the case. So they're basically saying, so the headline is from the information, Apple, a streaming punchline no more. When Apple launched its Apple TV Plus service nearly two years ago, executives throughout Hollywood and Silicon Valley snickered about the streaming video service. Uh, this dilettante, which knew, knew everything about making phones and nothing about making movies and television, would surely lose interest in the business before long they wagged. 
It turns out the opposite is true. Next year, Apple intends to significantly up its output of TV shows and movies to at least one, uh, one, one a week, according to a person familiar with the matter, more than double the pace this year. It also plans to spend more than $500 million on marketing Apple TV Plus this year, another p- person familiar with the ma- matter said. And um, so, so basically, it, it, this whole thing about why they use the term streaming is what I said it was a couple of days ago. It's going to be it's going to be about Apple TV and, and, and them doing more original content. OK. We, we, thank you for that. Okay. Marie. Yeah, thanks, um, Tyler, just because I'm going to have to jump off in eight minutes. And since you played the breaking. Oh, I, you know, can, just... can do you mind if I if I tease you to reveal why you have to go in eight minutes? <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. So Anne Marie's got a, a very important meeting with a very uh, important person's team, and uh, who is perhaps I, I don't even think it's, it's it's not at all an exaggeration to say the most important person in politics with regard to tech. And um, Anna Marie has kindly said that she's going to ask uh, her her friend Amy Klobuchar to join us uh, as part of this meeting, try and campaign on our behalf. <laughs> A lot of people clapping, and that would be fantastic. Um, and uh, do do mention if it if it's relevant, you know how uh, it seems like she's really uh, a gift to the American consumer, and it's that we have somebody who understands Maybe a tech gift issues to the American people. I mean, I'm yeah. very centrist, and I would have voted for her if she yeah. would have gone further. Yeah. I, Another bonus is she supported the Open Apps uh, Market Act. She's one of the uh, co-sponsors I, of it. I wish she were vice president, but sadly, no. Okay. Yeah. Anna Marie, you want to say something, right? Oh, well, yeah. yeah I just wanted to say, you know, um, I agree with all the sentiments here. Um, but the breaking news piece, actually, not my meeting is not really breaking news. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> the breaking news piece is that Senator Klobuchar announced yesterday yep. that she had been has been treated over the last... Um, six months or so for breast cancer at Mayo Clinic. Mm. And this is the first time she had publicly announced um, her diagnosis and uh, that she's confident that her treatment has gone well and thinks that um, it's going to stay in check. So we're all very grateful um, for her continued health. And I mean, if you guys can imagine like how busy she has been these last six months uh, leading on so many different issues while she was undergoing uh, cancer treatment uh, for breast cancer and um, the loss of her father at the same time. And it was bizarre yesterday because I literally, I'm horrible about snail mail, you guys. Like I let my mail pile up for a week and then I go out and like open my snail mail. And I had opened a handwritten note from her. Um, It was a a thing. meeting um a handwritten note from her saying she was uh, sorry that thanking us for our 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 note of condolences on her passing of her dad and that saying that they had had to push back his memorial and they're going to keep in touch on the date and all that and i just literally had just opened it when i saw the news break about her cancer diagnosis because i didn't even know um no one did and she hadn't publicly announced it to anyone so of course we're all wishing her the very best in her recovery, and um, I'll I'll try to get an update on whether or not she'd be has the capacity to come on and talk about um, the companion bill. And I know she's in talks with Senator Grassley now. That's also breaking news in the last 24 hours or so. 
um, which would be pretty remarkable. She's one of these few people who can successfully do bipartisan legislation. And for those who know Grassley, he's a, you know, pretty stalwart, you know, GOP -er on the Senate side. But if he's, uh, he's going to line up with her on this uh, antitrust stuff on the Senate side, that's going to be formidable. So, um, so thanks for letting me share that. Sure. Thanks for sharing it. I, I actually yeah. have met her in person, too. It was at the patient safety conference. Uh, she was a speaker. She's very, I mean, she's been around uh, fighting for people's, you know, right to health. Hmm. You are in the metrics again, Cam. Okay. All righty. We'll jump into the next headline while Cam tries to pull himself out of the matrix. Although the matrix four trailer dropped since we met last time. So oh. for those who haven't seen it, it um, let's hope it's as good as it appears it will be. So the next headline is uh, another Apple one. Jesus, there's a lot of Apple news today. Oh, it's the one that uh, you just read, that Apple intends to double its output of TV shows and movies next year to at least one per week and plans to spend a half a billion dollars on marketing Apple TV this year because they don't want to lose that space to, you know, the other players. It's a golden opportunity that they should have been doubling down on and running with. It's, it's a little weird that they didn't, I, I think they just didn't hire the right they, and the right company DNA. They're a hardware company, and and on and this TV streaming stuff. It's all about Hollywood, and it's all about a whole different culture of the the culture of Hollywood and the culture of Silicon Valley. Oh boy, are those different cultures? Holy cow, are those not so necessarily compatible? Even though they're geographically very close, but uh, you got to really you know this whole. TV streaming, comp competing for TV shows and content, and it's a messy, messy space, that whole uh, Hollywood game. Oh, boy. Um, I, I, I can understand why geeks uh, are not uh, so eager to play in that, that cesspit. So anyway, Apple saying they're not going to give up on it. Apple intends to double its output of TV shows and movies, and they have to, or else everyone's just going to drop their Apple TV subscriptions because they're they're losing on the content side. And so there it is. That's the whole, that's a big new headline. The next one is Twitter's testing new automated accounts label for profiles to self-identify as bots intended for good bots. And the label will remain opt-in for now. The next one's from the Financial Times. In a consultation document, the UK government suggests removing human review of some AI decisions. In a reversal of the EU data protections law, ex excising Article 22 of Brussels regulations would alarm privacy campaigners. The government will put itself on a coalition course with data privacy campaigners. And it says, the government will put itself on a collision course with data privacy campaigners and the EU on Friday when it suggests that the right to have a human review of some decisions made by computer algorithms could be removed in the UK. The idea is part of a broad-based plan for a big overhaul of the UK data regime after Brexit, which ministers say will boost innovation and deliver what Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, has called a data dividend for the UK economy. The step would mean rewriting and or deleting Article 22 of the EU Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, 
which the UK absorbed onto its statute book during Brexit, but is now looking to streamline as part of a post-Brexit economic reforms. Removing Article 22 has been a goal of the pro-Brexit campaigners as the UK tries to become a world leader in the use of AI, but is likely to alarm privacy campaigners when the government launches a 10-week consultation on Friday morning. The two people familiar with the contents of the consultation document said that the government had raised the question of whether Article 22 should either be removed or better, or better defined as part of the UK's new data regime. Article 22 guarantees people or guarantees that people can seek a human review of an algorithmic decision such as an online decision to award of a loan or a recruitment aptitude that test that uses algorithms to automatically filter candidates. So if I understand this correctly, basically, uh, geeks have been pointing out that the EU is kind of shooting itself in the foot by requiring this and is pushing AI innovation out of the EU. And the UK does have a really good AI team or two, quite, a, quite a bit of good AI happening out of the UK, honestly, disproportionately globally. And the uh, deep mind uh, is the first that jumps to mind. And that is a world-leading AI outfit, uh, which Google acquired. And so, as it says, this step would mean rewriting or deleting Article 22 of the EU data protection regulation that the UK uh, inherited. And now that Brexit has happened, they're in no under no obligation to maintain that or self-imposed limitation. Removing the article has been a goal of the pro-Brexit campaigners. To, as they want to become a world leader in AI, um, but it will alarm privacy campaigners because it removes the necessity, it emburdens, it, it it's a regulation that basically uh, burdens AI developers to be able to um, have a human review of an algorithmic decision. And this is very difficult because... AIs often make decisions that the programmers themselves don't know how it came to those decisions. So having an EU regulation that says you must have recourse and redress so that a, there can be a human review of an algorithmic decision that you developed and the developer saying, uh, I don't know how you expect me to do this because that's not how AI works. We build these systems they start making their own decisions. We don't know how they're making their decisions. There's no way to do a, an, a, an accounting or an audit. That's what it is. It's about an audit, a human audit of an AI decision. The EU has decided you need to be able to have the ability for a human audit of an AI decision. AI engineers are saying, you don't know how AI works, do you? Because that's not how it works. We're not able to do human audits of AI decisions. We, we didn't design them this way. We designed them to let them make their decisions. We're not interested in doing a human audit of how they made their decisions. Uh, so we can't really help you with this. And so if you're going to insist on this being part of the law, we might have to go do our AI development elsewhere. And th the EU was warned about this. So the UK is saying, hey, let's remove that uh, Article 22, which requires AI developers to, in, to allow for a human audit of an AI decision. And then the AI engineers of Europe will flock to the EU, to, from the EU to the UK. I hope that made sense.
Yes. Can, can someone confirm that maybe we need to unpack that a little bit more? No, I, You're I correct. Okay. It made sense? It absolutely makes sense. Okay. Both decisions. Yeah. Post-Brexit. Yeah. Very clear. Again, okay, good. Good, 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 good. It's, com it's complicated, but... It's interest or a political interest. You know, yeah. It can be seen from yeah. both sides. Yeah. So, uh, so it says, in April, the EU laid out its own plans for how to regulate AI, underlining the need for European values and fundamental rights and implementing algorithms. In particular, it requires that anyone developing high-risk applications, that's their uh, political parlance for AIs, in areas such as recruitment, will have to list them in a national register, notify people on whom they are being on whom they're being used and provide transparency on how the algorithms made their decisions. Oh my dear God. So, oh, you applied for a job. Okay, great. We used an AI algorithm. Here's how it did it. Here's how it figured out that you're not the right candidate because here's, here's our whole uh, thousands of variables that we put in for it to calculate, do its own magical assessment uh, that we ourselves don't understand. But basically, Here's the schem It's basically like providing schematics of how to make a nuclear bomb over to somebody and be like, yeah, here, here's the AI algorithm right here. You know, simple, right there, right there's, there's the plutonium, and here's the hyperflux capacitor going into the conutinary pin, and, you know, A and B plus C equals uh, WX squared. You, you understand Newtonian physics, right? You, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, if you, they actually had to actually explain it to anybody, no one would have a fucking clue what they're reading. So, Tyler, yes, Tyler, just wondering though, when they say human review, right? Right. Like already, they have lack of people who could do AI programming. How the hell are they going to get people to go review this stuff? And who's going to pay for that review? It's going to be so damn expensive. It's weird. I understand the heart of their issue, which is they. I mean, essentially, it's like. They want to make it so that the uh, AIs are auditable because there's this this all of this regulation came out at the time when there were headlines about AI biases and whatnot, and uh, so they want to be able to backtrack and audit how it came to its decision to make sure that it, that these decisions were being in, made in a way that's compliant with because if human if these were human made decisions, humans are easily auditable, and you can say ah. You didn't hire me because, uh, you know, you asked me if I had kids and, you know, if I'm married or if I'm not married or, you know, all of the, you can't do that. You can't ask me that. So, yeah, Tyler, uh, one thing to make it clear, people will always have the right to go to judicial review. Yes. So if you feel that you have been unfairly treated, right. whether it's by AI or individual, you can take it up. So right. I think to, to in, to limit innovation by putting these regulations for innovators is a wrong way to go. And I think the government's doing the right thing by, I don't know about completely removing it, but modifying it so that people in the innovation space can accelerate our development post-Brexit. Yeah, it's a trick. this is a really tricky one because the... Then, hey, yeah, go ahead, Shafari. Yeah. Then, then look, you have countries chasing big data companies and want access to the data. And that includes AI. It's the whole package. Yeah? You have countries which risk you know, that they push other data companies out because they believe, you know, like in India, for example, 
there's an influence. You have even the U.S. is putting certain some regulations in in the tech space, and now the EU tries to do that probably from a humanitarian point of view and also protection um, and the, uh, the governance point of view. So I understand, as you said, also their, the motivation of wanting to do that. And then, of course, you have now one country saying, hey, hey guys, come over, must cross the river yeah, and basically do, do things here. But that does not mean necessarily that it's something is, which can be adopted later on because you see the same that the GDPR rules actually have an influence globally of companies who want to participate or sell the products in, in the EU. So um, it's not, not, I don't think it's that easy just by removing a law that you go to, you open the space and you do whatever you want to do because uh, any company developing a product in the UK will have to look at the EU to think about how to sell the product. Yeah. Yeah, they still have to com make compatible, compliant type stuff. Politico words it quite nicely. It says, in reforming data regulator, UK eyes innovation over privacy, implying that, yeah, you're you're giving up a bit of um, transparency for innovation. That, that's partly true. I mean, that's kind of the nature of how, uh, by the way, processors are the same. If, what if we had to force processor chip makers to reveal uh, precise. By the way, AIs make the chips now. They, they design the chips. Let's put it that way. They lay out the chips as a little right. more accurate. Right. Yes. Well, yes. But ask ask Intel. Why did the AI decide to make your? Why is your processor done this way? Unpack this for us. Why AI? Intel's going to look at you like we have no fucking idea why the AI decided to do it that uh, way. But maybe it's, it's only AI unexplainable because AI. we designed them that way. And I know this sounds a little bizarre, but literally that was never. It was never even a priority for AIs to be able to explain what they're doing right. for so many years because there's actually a political advantage of saying it wasn't us, it was the algorithm. And literally you would get your project greenlit more for that. When you have several decades of that as your intellectual foundation, it's no surprise that things come out later as basically a black goop. If we basically put more work into actually labeling the neurons, it actually is not that hard to create explainable AI, but it's more politically useful to blame it on things in the algorithm. That's scary but, for medicine but, now, if you say that way for AI. Yeah, good, fair point. But, if, but the only thing that you would have actually a new business opportunity developing AI to audit AI. For a human, it might be difficult to understand it, but it, for AI, should yeah, be, that's you know, it should be feasible to have an algorithm. So I spent a few years on this one with things. It was, what I, I would say, wasted a few years, but I don't know with things. But, but the. Uh, my specialty was linguistic ontologies, which is a really weird subsection of things. There's probably only like 100 people that look at this really weird subsection of things. And I, I, it's not as useful as like computer vision. How, how much How much of that time was spent on the Jabberwocky? Uh, yeah, the old surprising amount. But the cool thing is about it is that is that because I had an advantage in that every single uh, node or neuron in any of the nets, the neural nets that I worked with was, was labeled and actually could explain itself. It meant that that property was inherited by every single thing built on it. So the cool part about it is it was all human readable. It was all, all linguistic thing. You could explain anything about it. And so when you know that something is, when you actually build these things and you should see that it's possible to do, and then you go, this is a general case solution. And then you start seeing how other fields can use it with stuff. I built prototypes for, for this, and I've seen other people have done others. It's one of these things going, okay, when are people going to realize X, Y, and Z? So the explainable AI for like, you know, like say for uh, computer chips for, for Intel, Intel's trying to create these monsters of like, you know, with thousands and thousands and thousands of subprocesses and, and uh, 
you know, like assembly language calls for that you can basically make things called to. Uh, NVIDIA is just saying, frack that, we're just going to make like the little ALU that only has like 30 processes and a calculator, <laughs> and then just basically put, you know, thousands of these right next to each other. Just you make a simple thing and then you copy and paste it everywhere. That's the future of, a, of, of chip design. It's not going to be making them more complex. It's actually making them very, very simple and then just fiddling with the knobs until you basically get a, a slightly different configuration. But once you actually see it, it's not that complicated to copy and paste. We just make it that way because that was very useful for Intel to hide all their other shenanigans to use competitive advantage. But it's not the future of what, what AI chip is going to be. Thank you for that, Chris. Oh, yes, hold that oh, thought. Hold, hold that thought, Professor. I just want to let Jean-Francois and Annika and Tom know I have invited you to the stage and Vinay. And so if you're not able to join, please bounce out and back in or whatever. Uh, so go ahead, uh, Professor Osler. I just thought what Heyman just said is really important, especially when we've been talking about AI and therapeutics and drug development and uh, diagnostics, because then all of these things are under regulation. So down the road, something goes wrong. So what Heyman was saying, you know, like the General Medical Council, if doctors are responsible to them, and in America you'll have the same sort of thing. So what will happen? Who's going to be responsible for the AI? analysis then mm. oops is not helpful yeah com well i love the uk classic tv show of computer says no um because we're yeah we're going to quickly end up in a in the computer says yes computer says no world um so there I mean, that polly has a parrot right it's like you got the little parrot on your shoulder you got the little parrot on your shoulder and it says it's like well polly says this polly says that i mean when you have I mean, they, they did this for years, essentially. There was a thing in Iraq where one of the things that they sold to, to them was was this, this bomb detector. And it was the craziest thing because there's actually no electronics inside. All it was, but it gave them the confidence to be able to actually inspect the vehicles with stuff. And they sold essentially like, like $30 million. There's a whole corruption thing around. I think it's a congressional inquiry with things about how they got away with selling this thing that didn't actually work. But somehow a lot of people would buy it and swear by that save their life and there's no electronics inside there or whatever it's literally just an empty box with things but the thing about it is that when you have a device that that not just you but the person you're talking to essentially acknowledges as being powered by something else that neither of you understand that can be very politically useful and very culturally useful to say that so when we're talking about like you can't explain the ai algorithm it's just how it works that itself has value even if the algorithm has is not used at all for, for anything logical or rational and I think when more technologists is, realize that the political implications of their work, they're going to basically be able to bake those things a lot deeper into the, into the things rather than just going, oh, it's not the tool, it's how people use it. And we had no idea people would use it for that. Do you even bother try to envision it? It's like, well, not really. We just hand it over to the AI ethics groups or whatever. This is the sort of thing we're going to see more often. The next article is from the Washington Post about Texas governor signs bill banning social media companies from blocking people or their content based on their viewpoint. And this uh, Texas governor, the same governor who just passed the really uh, hot bill that uh, stops women from getting an abortion after six weeks in the state of Texas, and even in a really interesting move, allows anyone to sue somebody for $10,000 uh, if they can prove in a court that they uh, were intending to get an abortion. So this bill sounds like really well-crafted in a way that's going to basically allow us to talk about Texas constantly for and against for the next two years while they build up a political profile. Yeah, so either he's... elections coming up next year. 
His election's coming up. He's also trying to scare out Democrats from moving to... And there's so many Democrats moving to Texas currently that it could turn Texas Democrat. <laughs> and I don't think they... And- I don't think he wants that. And so he bungled a lot of things too in the last year, including him getting COVID as well. And he's been doing a lot of messy stuff that he's trying to hide as well. Yeah. But uh, I read the article from the Washington Post uh, of the headline I just read, and they basically come to the sensible conclusion that this is him um, playing politics. It's going to get removed. Both both of those bills are going to get shut down. Our our new laws in Texas will be... um, dealt with and by the the proper authorities and that it's uh, him him building up his name in preparation for his presidential bid um down the road so uh, as a presidential candidate a short a short short question here do all americans believe that hans made sales not this fiction say again do all americans believe that hans made sales is not fiction Hand- the reality program Handmaid's no tales. it's actually it's embraced by a significant portion of the population so it makes it more exciting Handmaid's Hand- tales with hands made tales oh that that's a super obscure word. that's a super obscure one you it's only the thing that headlines who is the entire thing yeah okay uh next one is california defense attorney jay lederman once dubbed the hacktivist activist uh, has passed away at the age of 50 Door, the next one from Wall Street Journal, DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats sue New York City for its low capping, the, for its law capping the amount of commission the apps can charge, saying that the law is harmful government overreach. Basically, it's capped these food delivery companies to what percent of a, of a commission they can extract from these transactions uh, to around you know, 16, 17%, somewhere in that ballpark. They wanted to charge, you know, 25, 26% or something in that ballpark. And they say it's really hurting their bottom lines. Their business models don't really work with this uh, low of a margin. And so now they're suing to keep, and New York is by far their biggest market. It's actually by double by the charts that I saw. Um, New York is, it's wildly popular to do these uh, food delivery, but they might have to reinvent themselves, uh, sh- kind of shapeshift their business models to, uh, in light of these new uh, caps, commission caps. Governments controlling price of food essentially during uh, during a uh, during certain events with things in order to basically make people essentially not riot on them. I mean, this goes back to like you know wealth of nations and way before then. I mean, this is one of those. <laughs> I mean, this of course governments are going to regulate prices of food when things get crazy. Um, it might, and by the way, San Francisco just passed it as well, and it'll be interesting to see if this expedites the autonomous delivery of. Uh, robotic deliveries and what would what would new york because with robotic deliveries that takes out the human factor then the margins probably work out fine so to be it'll force them to race to autonomize the delivery uh but would new york interesting because you're gonna have to do smaller vehicles if you do that because essentially the uh a lot of the, the routes, while you can technically reach them by car, that there's so much traffic that's going to be an issue with things. So a lot of the courier, uh, a lot of the deliveries are by courier. So yeah, bikes or, go in and out. Or so drones. Thomas bikes. To, or uh, drones. 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 Well, I mean, the, the, the guys. The other thing they can do is just do like preset routes and um, and times. You know, instead of 
instead of whenever you order, we deliver right away. And then you have all these one-off orders where they're repeating routes over and over again. They can have set delivery times um, on set routes. And then, you know, basically you order and you either catch that particular one or the next one because like those basically like, you know, a subway or via or one of those things, they actually operate much cheaper than um, something on demand. Bring but the government the is very free to set those rates. Put an Amazon Prime sticker on the outside of a milkman vehicle from 100 years ago, and we'll just say it's like the newest thing you can invest in it. And it'll be great. Uh, speaking of Amazon, the next one's from CNBC. Amazon says it will now offer to cover 100% of college tuition for its 750,000 hourly employees in the U.S. after 90 days of employment starting in January. I guess you have to continue your employment to continue to get your college paid for. <laughs> Make sure you're still putting in your 16-hour days while you're doing that. And oh, by the way, with things, essentially, it's only video online. And oh, by the way, it's only with the select colleges that Amazon actually figure out how to make money with because they're moving into that market, too. And oh, by the way, it's like those oh, by the way things end up stacking up to be pretty impressive by the end of these things. The asterisks uh, from hell, yeah. For, well, for... Like, literally, if they make it as unattractive as possible with whatever group they've they subcontracted out contact with, uh, co uh, content for with things, the number of people that actually take them up on it will be, be low enough that they can start using all these other shenanigans. It's like, I, there is so much, basically, things with labor law and, and bad faith here that it, the, if, that, if it actually went well, that would be the surprise. But Quick. this means that the students will not be stuck with 200,000 student debt, right? I mean, student on debt, right? But they're not going to be getting those kinds of classes with things like this is this is more the uh, there's there's the um, American University and the, uh, the, the, the Phoenix University. This is more like that kind of crowd is what I, I imagine with things. You're not going to get your Harvard degree while you're working in an Amazon warehouse. This is not going to happen. On the other hand, I bet you... saying I can sign up for an online class that technically gives me the the credentials of a nurse, even though I'm not practicing the field, I'm not interacting with other people in the field. But I'm not basically even in a place where where medicine is practiced. But you know what? I saw some videos once. So it's basically like imagine branded YouTube. That is essentially the level of university education that they're offering there, which isn't necessarily terrible. It's just they're not going to have enough hours of the day to actually do so. I mean, and so so it's 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 a little facetious for them to say one million people that are, are getting access to this rather than the well we had like three thousand people take us up on it or ten thousand people actually go through with this. It, it's going to be such a small rounding number that it's just something they can you know talk about in PR, but they use it as a recruitment and it's a carrot to say, hey, look, you can theoretically do this rather than actually looking with hard things. But by the time we people figure that out, it's going to be like you know four or five years later, and they've been able to waive waive our PR thing. So that's that's the mission accomplished. The stock price went up in the meanwhile. It's funny you mentioned mission accomplished. It's the same thing that the U.S. military uses, right, to recruit uh, people. And fortunately, the people who go for these positions are the hard, most hardest to hit people, and they don't end up doing what they hope to do. Um, but I'm also curious, like, would this be like a test for Amazon to figure out if they could get into the educational industry? I totally, I, I wouldn't, it's, it's look Amazon. It's a very simple way to look at it. It's like, can, is there, is there an industry? Yes. Can it, can, can it be basically put on our computer systems? Can we centralize it? Or can Alexa teach If it's not, no, they're going to make it. I, I think, I think it, um, it originally started because, well, I read this article, um, probably three months ago that said that. Jeff Bezos, he believes in attrition. He doesn't want people in the lower ranks, like the warehouse ranks, to rise 
um, they don't, there isn't a management track for them. And they had all these union discussions about this where there's not even like lead management. And his executives have said, you'll get better workers if you give them a track to aspire to. But um, he doesn't want that. He wants them out in two years because he thinks that uh, that that's about as long as they're going to be productive. Then they start like finding ways to slow down and cut time and, you know, be lazy and things like that. So the original idea for the um, the education was that it would encourage them to leave. And so he had classes originally in on campus that people could take. But what I don't know about either the GI Bill or Amazon is do they have predefined classes that you can like, could you take any class or does it have to be like something that is uh, that leads directly to a, a career or profession, something like that? Do you know if it's open or? It'll be whatever makes two things work. But one quick thing to say about the two years up and out type kind of thing. This is called stack ranking, even though Amazon calls it not, which is a lie with things. But stock ranking is a practice. I also use it at, 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 um, at Microsoft. And I think they were looking at Facebook and things, but they ended up going a little bit different uh, version there. But um, this leads to fiefdoms and an extreme amount of infighting because essentially the uh, uh, when you have you have to fire the 5% or 10% of your team every you know X number of, 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 of you know, time cycles with quarters or years or whatever, what this ends up meaning is that you hire people just to fire them so you can keep your team cohesive. It means that you have the best workers if they're not basically documenting every single thing they do. Uh, then, well, they get out the door with stuff because they weren't playing the politics of making sure to you know hit the metrics for whatever thing was being measured. The thing that's very dangerous about this when you do it with workers in a warehouse is that when you have an AI managing them and saying, you know, run to this rack, run to that rack, the thing that basically you end up having your performance thing is you physically have injuries. Your your feet have basically basically had uh, uh, you know, like uh, issues with your ankles. Your back is thrown out. These are some of these are near permanent conditions. So when they say two years and then essentially they're not productive anymore, it's not them being lazy. It's the fact that essentially you're acquiring permanent injuries that are now a burden of the entire healthcare system to deal with. Which, by the way, Amazon's going to figure out how to make money on that too. Uh, Walmart this is the same playbook Walmart did back in the uh, back in the day with things where they would basically take out life insurance policies on their greeters in the front of the store. And they figured that if they just hire someone to stand there, they could actually take out policies on them that would make them money when they die with stuff. And they basically put it's it just, it's just brutal. I mean, it, it, this is not how people should be treated in society. But this is one that we basically say it's worth getting our packages uh, a, you know a, a few hours or sooner or a, a few cents cheaper. But over the long term, it leads to a degradation of all the infrastructure that we rely on for that. Uh, anyways, that's a longer rant, but and, yes. And he's basically killing the time until the robots take over, right? In the warehouse. That's all it is at this stage. Um, by the way, I did, did some digging into Amazon's education wing. Like, you remember how in hackathons, Amazon used to give in-kind uh, AWS time, right? AWS server time. Uh -huh. I'm wondering also, based on their different uh, their different uh, verticals in the education space, are they giving twenty thousand in terms of in kind educational credits? Because they could actually give textbooks through their Amazon Prime. They could give Prime student accounts. They could give online accounts, online education accounts through everything. That's twenty thousand dollars in in kind stuff they could do as well. Okay, so the next one up is from Bloomberg that the UK's Department of Health is ending its partnership with Palantir following criticism from privacy groups over lack of transparency. The government previously criticized by privacy groups over the deal they had with Palantir. And where did that article go? Here it is. And it says, um, government pre yeah, Palantir struck a number of contracts with the UK government. 
it's from what I've heard through the back channels that Palantir was brought in to help them figure out all of the data around COVID spreads and and that it was quite helpful in managing COVID in the UK. But the uh, NHS hired Palantir to crunch all of this data in a way that only Palantir is one of the few companies that can. This is what their specialty is. NHS, this is not an NHS specialty to crunch big data sets around COVID cases. And, um, but NHS didn't, um, make it transparent enough that they were hiring Palantir to do this. So when it was, when it was somehow revealed that Palantir was hired, people went a little bit crazy that, oh, you're using our data. You gave our data to a private company. And there was a large, uh, outcry over that. So, the UK government is ending the data deal with Palantir following criticism from privacy groups um, about the lack of transparency on how the contracts were awarded to the UK data giant. The Department of Health uh, put out a tender in August to shift its adult social care dashboard away from third-party providers to its own system built by BAE Systems, Europe's largest defense firm, according to public documents. These document said that DHSC had until September 30 to transfer the data to this platform before it would have to renew its license with Palantir. Denver-based Palantir was co-founded by billionaire Peter Thiel to provide data analytics and consulting to governments. Data analytics and consulting to governments. That's what they do. That's their specialty. They're they're highly regarded in the field. Uh, the pandemic has produced a boom in demand, including from Britain. And by the way, as he said, the back channel is, is because these governments get all this COVID data and these politicians who see all of this COVID data throw their hands in the air and scratch their head and say, well, I, this is, I don't know what to do. Uh, cases, uh, ICUs, number of beds, shit, I fucking failed at algebra. Help, 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 sweet Jesus, help. This has nothing to do with politics. This is numbers and shit. Fuck this nonsense. Did somebody get me some real geeks in here quick. That's what Palantir does. That's why Palantir is so incredibly busy at the moment because this is what they really excel at. This is the the kid that got all A's in, in algebra class, you know. You're calling him in to help you with your homework the night before your big algebra exam, you know, because uh, you are utterly useless when it comes to math. So Palantir is brought in to help the NHS. And they've been—they've had a boom in demand, including in Britain, which hired it to primarily help manage the vast amounts of data being compiled in response to the spread of COVID-19. As I told you, my back-channel information is correct. The company also has a number of different contracts with the UK government, including the Cabinet Office and the Ministry of Defense, and fucking everybody. Palantir's working with everybody, including the you know dog walking agency. Yes, them too, and including the. You know, tax office, the de the department of office, the defense, the all of it, all of it, all of it, all. Palantir is working with all of them. So the journalist is only aware that it's the cabinet office and the ministry of defense. A spokesperson for the DHSC declined to comment. A representative for Palantir didn't immediately respond to request for comment. Yeah, you you're going to notice a lot of that a lot more going forward. By the way, of uh, you know, re refuse to comment, refuse to comment, refuse to comment, refuse to comment. It used to be back in the when journalists were actually doing journalism, people would actually talk to journalists because the journalists were just really just trying to figure out what happened. And, we're you know, we're going to take your quote and share it with our audience. As simple as that. 
The problem is we're now in the age of activist journalism where they're weaponizing their reach and platforms. And so everyone's like, no, 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 fuck you. I'm not giving you no quotes. No, no, no. I'm not falling for that trip. Uh, you, this is just the the unfortunate reality of journalism 2021. No one's going to talk to journalists even off the record. Just well, Hey, Tyler, can I, can I go back before you go on yeah. the journalist part, which is back to the privacy issue. Mm. The, the EU claims to be so restrictive of their you know GDPR and all of their privacy. So giving that to Palantir is going to have you know, that their population has a certain expectation of how their data is used and whether they even got the correct permissions originally or have, you know, exclusion to that, to use that and then give it to Palantir. Um, they're going to come under huge scrutiny there. Yeah, it says so, the, U- the UK government has been criticized for how it handled sensitive data during the pandemic. The NHS allowed Palantir access to sensitive person personal data of patients, employees and members of the public, though the agreement required that the data be stripped of personal identifiers or aggregated before being shared. After lobbying from privacy campaigners, the UK government said it would consult with the public before extending contracts between NHS and Palantir. The DHSC will no longer have any contracts with Palantir after the transition, according to data available on public websites. Government documents show that Mosaic Services won the tender, which tracks real-time information such as data tests, hospital discharges, and available care. The London-based IT consultant clients include uh companies you never heard of so now you're going to have really subpar analytics on your data and uh, well done tyler but you have to remember that we had laws passed for because of the pandemic which gave emergency powers to the government and that means that they're not breaking the law the, 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 the emergency powers thing was something that was very important on this. One, one thing I just wanted to highlight real quick is like, uh, the green badgers. So in uh, when, when the Snowden things were happening, there was some internal things within NSA about whether or not essentially like you know, who screwed up what with things. But one of the things that essentially they had during the NSA stuff is they privatized a large amount of their workforce with Booz Allen Hamilton. And they said, well, those are the green badger people coming in with stuff and they have a different set of access. They don't technically work for the government. Technically, they work for a subcontractor of the government that technically has 80 percent of their contracts with the NSA. And that was what Snowden was with. And that was the whole up for, for a few weeks with things. But the reason I bring that up is that there is basically a function of government where it's not that the government lacks these capabilities or competencies uh, or has a- or lacks access to them, in fact. Uh, for being able to analyze data set, you know, make them look pretty, be able to make sense of it. It's the fact that politically that is something that's dangerous because any time that essentially one of those, those, those very competent uh, organizations that can analyze data comes back internally and says, by the way, uh, we're wasting money on this port project over here. Well, that makes you a political target if you're honest about things. And if, if you're the, the most honest ones with things, the most accurate ones are basically vulnerable during election cycles for saying, well, that was pork in my district. Obviously, this is a government waste and abuse thing uh, of the group that was doing the research. So what you do is you fire all those people involved. Now, what ends up happening is that politically, they need to basically still maintain some of those capabilities. So what they do is they basically say, hey, if you go private sector, we'll subcontract out to you and you can sell it to us at a premium. But this also allows us politically hold you at an arm's length distance where you can take round table of round robin between two or three different sub uh, contractors just enough to say technically, oh, wow, you shut that government waste, fraud and abuse thing, even though it was a thing investigating such. And then by the, at the end of it, you can basically hire them back. The, the reason why I'm highlighting how this game works essentially on that side is because there is a unique aspect of this for intelligence agencies specifically where what they will do is they say uh, we're, it was illegal for us to collect that information to process 
But as long as there's a private group doing it that we subcontracted out to, they can pretend like something happened one way or the other. So the fact that this ad power is actually used during COVID is actually is like to save lives is this thing. That makes sense. But this is a this is an, an iteration of a long-standing arrangement and a long-standing pattern. If those people are actually concerned about their data, they should be asking questions about governance of essentially who's making the decisions on where that data goes, rather than whether or not one particular company gets hired or not. Because this is a long-standing uh, pattern that is starting to become uh, very, very, very prominent. But the, the roots for that are much older than that. Is and my this mic going to get worse? Right? Oh, no. This will only get worse as the costs for healthcare rise during this pandemic. Yeah, um, okay. Excuse me. Excuse. Okay. So the next headline is. The London Evening Standard says they have sources that UK digital bank Monzo plans to launch a buy now, pay later. Holy shit. Have you guys been hearing about these buy now, pay laters? Now the neobanks are all hot to add buy now, pay later. By the way, it was only uh, how many days ago that the other UK based neobank Revolut added buy now, pay later. What was that? 48 hours ago? Or was that yesterday? We can Google that and find out. Revolut. Uh, in the news headlines was British fintechs are jumping into the booming buy now, pay later market by CNBC one hour ago. <laughs> yes, indeed they are. Uh, and it says um, when Revolut plans to compete on buy now, pay later three days ago. So th it was uh, the end of the times Revolut card now uh, buy now, pay later three days ago. Revolut and Monzo are the two two of the big and there's a couple of others but revolut and monzo i think are the two biggest what are called neobanks which are cloud-based banks modern banks banks that kids use um and uh, they come with all kinds of new fancy features for geeks geeks love these neobanks and and the fact that they're jumping into buy now pay later tells you these are very forward-looking progressive neobanks but the fact that Revolut jumped into it three days ago and it took three days later for their competitor, Monzo, to announce it, that tells you it's not really that hard to do the buy now, pay later announcement. The hard part is getting all of the merchants uh, on board. But this headline says UK fintech firms Monzo and Revolut are planning to launch their own buy now, pay later services. Buy now, pay later plans let users sp spread the cost of their purchases over a series of interest-free installments. The buy now, pay later space is attracting interest from major companies, including PayPal, Amazon, and Square. Yes, they're all doing buy now, pay later. Amazon uh, partnered with a firm in the U.S. a week ago. Square purchased Afterpay in Australia a month ago. PayPal acquired, uh, uh, announced buy, buy now, pay later within the past couple weeks. It's just a buy now, pay later bonanza. Uh, all over the planet at the moment. So it's it's no. So the question is, who's going to be announcing one tomorrow? It's it's starting to outpace people announcing that they accept Bitcoin or launching NFTs. It's getting that crazy. Like I'm expecting McDonald's to launch their own buy now, pay later. You know, by next week sometime. So um, to that point, the very next headline is from CNBC that a firm, the America's buy now, pay later, who just announced they got the exclusive deal to work with Amazon. Uh, and my oh my, that's one of the best uh, tech deals of the plan. Uh, uh, you know, imagine getting Amazon and you're a buy now, pay later company. And now when people check out on Amazon, they're doing buy now, pay later through your buy now, pay later system. Now you know why their stock shut up 30% um, last week during that announcement. And their stock is up another 20% today because of their quarter, their 
quarterly earnings report where they grew up 71% year over year. And uh, yeah, the stock is in the headline itself from CNBC that says the stock is up 20%. And uh, they are one of the few publicly traded uh, buy now, pay later companies. And that's why I invested because the space is booming, even though Klarna would be my first. Uh, but Klarna is not uh, publicly traded yet. So um, anyway, the next big headline is that Bloomberg from Bloomberg that the Tinder has a new CEO um, named Renate Nyborg, who last served as Tinder's general manager of Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So she just got promoted because uh, somebody who I really like, Jim Lenzone, a lovely guy, um, he was running CBS Interactive before Tinder, and now... Tinder CEO Jim Lanzone will be the next CEO of Yahoo. So he went over to Yahoo and Renate Nyberg went over to Tinder. Or she was already at Tinder, but for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. She just got took over Jim's seat as CEO, as he's now CEO of Yahoo. And let's hope Jim can do something with Yahoo. That's a challenge. <laughs> oh boy, that's a challenge. I'm tempted to call him up and see how I might be able to help, because that would be interesting to see. He, he can collect essentially a golden parachute paycheck as he goes through another round with the things, you know, like Mercy yeah. things. She, she gave it a go and she's like, well, I could do this other stuff. And then, oh, wait, NSA is on my doorstep and saying we'll yeah. get jail time if we don't cooperate with this thing. And, oh, wait, here's essentially some mail. Can we do mail? I did Gmail back in the day. And yeah, yeah. And, you know what? During that time, she did end up getting, getting board seats essentially for you know, for Alibaba and for Walmart and all these other things. So there's actually being a CEO of Yahoo can have some very unique advantages. Uh, it's just not necessarily for the company and the people that own it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, Marissa made a killing out of her stint there at Yahoo. She, she went, went all for it. Yeah. Well, she had a kid during that time as well. Uh, she, so props to like, that. It was miraculous how much stuff she got uh, got in there with things. And part yeah. of those keeping your lieutenants very, very happy. And she did a very good job about that. Yeah. Wise Track, which facilitates buy now, pay later services for in-person business transactions, raises $45 million. Uh, All you need to know, that whole space is booming. And Vice has an article that I, I have an issue with. And the, here, here, let's dive into it. It says uh, they have a report. That since 2004, my main complaint is the tonality of how they position and frame this. It says that since 2004, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Twitter have earned $43.8 billion in contracts with the Pentagon, mostly in relation to the war on terror. No, it's not in relation to the war on terror. Not at all. And that's the problem is they're trying to, by creating the headline in that way, they're really shooting themselves in the face uh, journalistically because, I, I'm gonna, let's, let's unpack this, but please note the headline and how it's phrased. That since 2004, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Twitter have earned $43.8 billion collectively in contracts with the Pentagon, mostly in relation to the war on terror. No. Has, it really has nothing to do with the war on terror, as I will now explain. But I'm, but first, oh, wait, can you just repeat the headline one more time, please? I, I missed it. Okay. The headline is, report, since 2004, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Twitter have earned collectively $43.8 billion in contracts with the Pentagon, mostly in relation to the war on terror. 
And what I have a problem with is especially that last bit about mostly in relation to the war on terror. Because just to really get right to the punchline, it's all, it's all as they wait till the very end of the, they spend the whole article, it's very lengthy, talking about how the war on terror, how, you know, it's terrible, 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 and big tech has got their bloody hands all over this, and the war on terror, and big tech, and the government, and the Pentagon, and the war on terror, and now they're going after brown people, and black people, and war on terror for the past 20 years, and black people, and brown people, and war on terror, and big tech, and then they get to the very bottom, and they say, okay, now here's what we actually noticed is, uh, it's a whole bunch of cloud services, Google Cloud, Amazon Cloud, Microsoft Cloud, and it turns out Twitter got fucking nothing. But we just threw them under the bus just right along with them to make it seem like it's a big tech issue. They just have all the intercepted surveillance data on their populations that is in the same data centers. And what this is physically doing is it's saying, oh, we'll rent some racks on the basically the next floor up that we can run a cable to. And I wish people would be more more literal when they look at the physical allocation of these monies with things, because it's 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 somewhat comical when you actually look at the things. Because they talk about, oh, this big cloud thing and that big cloud thing. It's literally just running like like a, like a few dozen cables between floors of a building or a, a collection of buildings. It's not that exotic. No, but just the idea that cloud that I mean the 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 government ascent you know DARPA. Tyler, Tyler, Tyler. Yes. There's a breaking news in the UK from okay. Sky about okay. an Afghan commando, which has just been arrested, who was who was extracted from. Uh, Afghanistan, but he's a. Uh, uh, you can check it out, but he he's a. I assume he's a terrorist. I don't know, but uh, I'm assuming if the police have arrested him. Where he's, in Lo- in London? Yeah, yeah no, no, in, London, Manchester, in Manchester, I think. Okay, in, let me let me try and find this one real fast. Ch- Manchester. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Here my we walk, go. So. Okay, armed police arrest Afghan special forces commando at Manchester Hotel, is the headline. Are another, this is in the past five minutes. Armed cops arrest Afghan Special Forces Commando at Manchester Hotel after fleeing Kabul on evacuation. So he managed to get on one of the planes. And it says police can hold a suspect for up to 96 hours without charge if suspected of a serious crime. They can hold a suspect for up to 814 days without charge if arrested under terrorism legislation. Okay, well, that's good. Uh, uh, I, and the, the people at Guantanamo Bay would would love to hear that. So armed police have arrested an Afghan special forces commando at the hotel in Manchester where he had been in quarantine with his family after arriving on an evacuation flight from Kabul. The pre-dawn raid is thought to have taken place on or around the 31st of August or the 1st of September. And the individual is thought to still be in detention. It is not clear why he was arrested or if he had been charged with the crime, police can hold the suspect, as I said. The, ho- the Home Office and the Ministry of Defense declined to comment. The government spokesperson said, we don't comment on individual cases. As I said, you're going to, from here on out, it's going to be no comments from everybody. A source with knowledge of the case said that the Afghan commando is understood to have arrived with his family in the UK on British evacuation flight. There, They were put up in a hotel in Manchester for a period of coronavirus quarantine because Afghanistan's on the government's COVID red list. Armed police are understood to have raided their room at just before dawn. The source said he was told they took the individual away in handcuffs. Greater Manchester police referred a query on the arrest to the home office. The UK evacuated more than 15,000 Afghans 
British nationals and others from Afghanistan in just two weeks last month following the Taliban takeover. The overwhelming majority of the evacuees were fleeing in fear for their lives, including thousands of Afghans who worked loyally as interpreters and other staff for the UK military and diplomats facing death threats from the Taliban. In, in return, members of the Afghan Special Forces, who provided a vital role in tracking the terrorist threat in Afghanistan, had served alongside their British and other NATO counterparts, have also been given a safe haven, with hundreds more hoping to be allowed to resettle in Britain. They are living in hiding in Afghanistan, terrified of being hunted down by the country's new Taliban rulers. British security officers have been working hard to vet anyone who is granted refuge. Sky News revealed last month that a person from Afghanistan on the UK's no-fly list was flown into Birmingham as part of an evacuation operation. The no-fly list is designed to block individuals who are considered a security threat from reaching the UK. In that incident, though, the government looked at the case and decided they are not a person of interest and no further action was taken. To be continued. I did see a headline um, right before we opened the room that somebody was hunted down by the Taliban and shot, murdered, kind of, or be, even beheaded in broad daylight in the middle of Kabul today, and it was a former ally, uh, cooperative uh, Afghani of the U.S. So if somebody can find that headline, that's a, quite a troubling, concerning development. Um, but thank you for that update. Back to the Vice um, article. Yes. I was just going to add that um, on CNN, actually, this morning as well, they were showing that they have arrested and tortured and stuff Afghan reporters. In fact, it was just gruesome to see a couple of uh, reporters, how they have been tortured. I, I, I just and beaten and bruised. Yeah, exactly. I saw it. So it was really gruesome. Yeah. I'll okay. find that out for you, uh, Tyler, because one of okay. my st team members is a uh, minority in Af from Afghanistan, yeah, which is British. I remember that. Thank you for that. So back to the Vice article about how big tech have earned nearly $50 billion in contracts with the Pentagon, mostly in relation to the war on terror. No, it's not in relation to the war on terror. They're providing cloud hosting. It's like blaming... You know, a kid, a kindergarten who's using cloud hosting, and now you're saying big tech is in, you know, is after your kids. It's like, no, it has nothing. Fuck those. Just because a company's providing cloud hosting, they provide cloud hosting to every uh, donut shops. And so you're as big tech into donuts now? No. Well, donuts don't kill you. Well, actually, they do, but that's a little slower. But the, the fact that the government, the, the fact that government agencies are using big tech cloud doesn't mean that the big tech is uh, in the war on terror. Big tech so, has made... So, I'm, so, so what's it's the, the, the issue I have is the wording of it. You're, they're trying uh, to uh, implicate yeah. big tech as playing an active role in the war on terror. They're not playing an active role. They're playing an incredibly, barely, super subtle, passive role in that their, their hard drives are being used to store data that the government agencies are storing. Well, analyzing it too, though, that, and that is a function, but I, I say which I, the, the criticism you have against the journalists with stuff is accurate. But the one thing I do want to highlight there is that with groups like Google, um, Jigsaw is a really interesting version of this where they have an internal division whose sole job is to basically say, how can we assist uh, nation states to basically uh, go after terrorists? How can we basically shut down on uh, arms trafficking between countries and such? 
And what that de facto is, is is moving in from a we are a place where you can be like a glorified classified Dropbox where you can drop things to a can we basically use our engineering expertise to actually do a thing? And this was really controversial for a while. So the, the messaging and the wording around that is, is very nuanced. And when you have the Jedi contract and things that are basically up in the air from like between Amazon and Microsoft about who's going to fight to store the NSA and all the Intel uh, communities, uh, you know, data sets. There's not just storage. It's also, uh, it also covers essentially the interception of things. It also covers essentially when we have the Snowden Prism Leaks 2.0 or whatever in the future. It's going to basically be whatever they put on the table now is going to be in the stake there. And so that the, the dollars awarded is it's, it's, there, there, there's a lot going on there. I don't I don't think this journalist has as the the nuance down with things, but it is is important because if you actually have uh, if you have support of the programs, you have criticism of them, it, having an accurate understanding of that or an accurate uh, uh, articulation of it is very important. So there's that. So the article quotes somebody named Rama Kudaimi, deputy campaign director at ACRE. Here's the quote: It. it is it acceptable for big tech to do these horrendous things to families at the borders or in the name of national security and terrorism? What? Is it acceptable for big tech to do these horrendous things to these families at the borders? What the fuck is Google doing to immigrants crossing the border? Or or Facebook or Twitter or Tinder or Snapchat or whoever the fuck you... Amazon... Amazon just built a fucking... One of the world's biggest factories on just on the other side of the Mexican border. Tyler, let's have a thought exercise here. So imagine if uh, Palantir became one of the big five tech in the, in the U.S., which you could say maybe that's impossible because America's, you know, it's not consumer, yeah. Well, yeah, but, but, but the U.S. does spend a lot of money and say Palantir started to do a lot more military uh, contracts overseas too. Yes, okay. You know, in, some co- in some countries, you know, the, the government is a big spender. Right, yes. and the U.S. it's more consumer-led. So I guess the yes. story, like, the, you know, with the, the, the government, the, the, gov- the government's honestly the biggest spender. Yeah, yeah. So it's their primary market for Palantir. In this case, so in this, in this, in this like said, it's a primary market. Palantir yes. is set up to they advertise themselves as that. Versus like you know Amazon, etc. They they happen to be you know they're more con- you know to every man, I guess, to everyone, right? They're kind of broad consumer startups, so uh, sorry tech companies. Versus like Palantir is explicitly set up to serve governments. I think that's an important nuance um, for this story if like it ever gets, you know, if Palantir ever got that big, which probably won't. I, I, this I article has nothing to do with Palantir, though. This, this article I, is exclusive, exclusively about Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Okay, yeah, but and the, I guess big the, tech, right? The, no, but the last, sentence, the, the last sentence of the article is Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Twitter, and Google did not respond to requests for this, uh, to requests for comment. As again, you're going to start seeing that a lot, but because this is one of those hit pieces where they're precisely yeah, we're trying to take them down for, yeah. they're trying to attach, they're trying to attach concretely these big specific specifically these companies to the war on terror and by by extension what they're doing to brown people at the border. Okay, okay. I, I'm I'm with you that government agencies are using these companies services. They by the way they use Gmail too. They, by the way, so, they use so, Google Calendar. By the way, they use Google so Meet. In these, in these news the outlets, question is just, why? Because honestly, these are not that fucking hard to create a freaking calendar app with things. We've basically there was a, there was a joke in the IT. The journalists have been. It's, and it's popular stuff. now, like the clicks. In the eighties and nineties, kind of driving the. 
in the 80s and 90s, they they literally had a thing where any basically app that anyone's making, it wasn't apps in that day, it was like uh, programs uh, that you would make on on, uh, server farms and those things. And uh, the thing about it is that during during that era, almost every single application would basically grow and grow complexity until it basically featured an email version of things. And the fact is that we're using the Gmail version of things, that's, there's no reason for that. Shouldn't have the capability of creating its own Google clones literally on a monthly basis. It's not that hard to do. The thing is that when you basically uh, lobotomize essentially all the talent that basically can develop that those sorts of things, and you shed that over time, that means that they they become reliant on private sector capabilities, which might be seen as a weakness if you're looking at a development standpoint. But it's very very useful politically if you're trying to basically go make in runs around whatever quarter legislative process there is. So it is it, a way of getting around a lot of internal bottlenecks. Um, those internal bottlenecks, though, sometimes are like, you know, constitutional protections and stuff like that. Um, this is not something that essentially is a decision, is something that happens overnight. The thing that happens, ha- really happening here is the meta story, is that the journals are doing um, uh, uh, basically uh, backpedaling with things because they spent about a decade and a half talking about tech is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, it just basically murdered our entire industry. But you know what? The survivors that basically survive, that basically end up thriving from all those Facebook likes and Google advertisement things that basically they can feature alongside every article talking about how awesome the tech companies are. Those were the ones that survived the ones. The ones that didn't play that, that game with things, they got wiped out minus a few holdouts like New York Times or whatever. And even they have their own version. The, the reason why I bring this up is that I, we have a decade and a half of basically tech is the most amazing thing ever and will save the planet. Journalists turning the blind eye to this because that was the deal made for them to be able to survive essentially all the classifieds being taken out from Craigslist and the entire revenue of the industry being obliterated. So the thing is now they're going, oh, wait, we made a deal with the devil and it basically, ba- it basically backfired on us. And the fact is that while they did so, they did so very incompetently. And so now you've got journalists trying to actually do their job because, frankly, they haven't done that for a decade or two. And it's like, you know, imagine, do, imagine saving your entire semester's worth of homework until the day before, like, in school as a kid. Hang on. I'm, pre- I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure the Department of Defense is using IKEA furniture. When are we going to have the witch trial on IKEA? I mean, that actually, hold on, Tyler, oh, hold on, Tyler, you actually talked about a big one there. Actually, the furniture doesn't come from Ikea. Where it comes from is, is actually from DMV, and the same place they get their furniture is from the slave labor in the prisons. That's actually a huge social issue that almost no one talks about. You actually, you actually hit a big one there. <laughs> <laughs> but most That's of the, a, yeah. One of the, one of the big reasons that they outsource, though, is for, well, two reasons. One is the accounting works out better, right? So it's an expense that they can, that's limited. They don't have to set up an office for it. It is way more expensive for these people to hire the talent in-house and create things in-house than it is for them to just requisition them um, for single time purchases um, outside or for even long-term contracts. It's just much cheaper. And then the other issue is for these people, as soon as they work X period of time, they become de facto, you know, uh, tenured civil servants. And then um, dealing with getting them out of the of the um, business is actually really, really hard because it literally, I mean, the due process is very, very strict once they become civil servants. So I don't see that going away. That is as a really important way that they're actually getting a lot of this technology. But um, I do know that a lot of the furniture in some of the agencies is definitely Office Max furniture <laughs> because I, I actually saw it all come in and I see where it came from and I know the person who ordered it all because I was like, this is the worst chair in the history of man. Why is it even a chair? You should just put a spike on it and call it a torture device. 
And they were like, no, no, here it is. This catalog, it's super cheap. So that's, that is, that is actually where they get their stuff from. It's not, and like they get a lot of their computers and stuff. Um, it's um, from directly from the manufacturer, like Dell is a huge supplier. Uh, but, but for that, like, I don't think it's not like it's the latest model. I think maybe, maybe they have like windows seven now. So, you know, <laughs> they get everything super cheap, but it's like the day old factory. So we're going to go after who they ate. I know they had they had McDonald's for lunch, and now McDonald's is uh, part of the war on terror. So, hey, Tyler. Yes. Hey, Tyler, just a quick yes. point on that. Yes. I think there's a bigger issue uh, from the story that you're just sharing, which is the big tech, if you will, Google, Amazon, whatever. I think it's becoming more of a government, government-ish uh, presence. I think the gov the real government, federal government or state or whatever, they are slowly realizing that this is not just a private enterprise, uh, as in the olden days. Uh, there's just so much power wielded unintentionally, if you will. Not necessarily that the big tech is planning to do this or has been planning to do this, but uh, especially with respect to the ability of these spec these big tech can exert unknowingly, if you will, over government. You know, the example, a good example would be, you know, when, when Apple says, oh, we can't really de, uh, uh, whatever, declassify or whatever, show the password of a blah, blah, blah. And the FBI had to look for hackers to try to get the password of a particular suspect individual's uh, iPhone. I mean, that's a really quick example to show that it is really not, not just a private individual, a private entity anymore. It does have a lot of power and the government is really well, they have to really think about a way to deal with it. You know, they can even block a Donald Trump's tweet. You know, can you can you imagine a private entity can stop uh, a government, a president of a country to air? I've, I've got a, I've got all I've got a huge laundry list of examples of how we can point at big tech and the failures of big tech and the, a lot of grievances. But, but the fact that they're selling with things, so the journalist is just going for the basic one. It's like, come on, dude, so swing higher. The, yeah, but the fact that you're poking on them that they sell their cloud services to government agencies, including the Department of Defense, and then extrapolating that the Department of Defense doing all this terrible stuff uh, at the borders and the war on terror, and then and then twisting the language to say that they're monetizing on the war on terror, it's like you, you're that's you're you're really going hard into the paint to try and you know you know. Paint these guys with a bad brush. There's lots of ways to point out the real uh, egregious behaviors of big tech, but you're really stretching on this one. Yeah, Evan? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, my background is telecom, and big telecom has been in the back pocket of the government from the beginning of telecom, whether it's Verizon or AT&T yep. and others. I mean, they are practically extensions of the government uh, for, for various reasons, and no one seems to blink an eye at that with the ability to you know, you know uh, intercept yeah. any phone call or video or other private communication so it's a little look ironic up, look at the origin of keyhole where they basically got oh cool this is google earth we can look at anywhere on the planet where did this come from with things the executives from that were entirely from inqtel and and uh and, you know a, a national geospatial agency and stuff and then like what's fun about this is as its known disclosures revealed some of the extra fun toys they have is one of the one of the capabilities that you have is uh, being able to have a reverse lookup for all the people that looked at certain geographic locations of the planet. That is really freaking useful for every single API call that's made from all the other sub suppliers. 
And by the way, being able to basically say, oh, let's look at every single person. Let's look at this military base or this particular office building or this particular thing. That's a really useful capability. I don't think people realize that when you look at this stuff, it's not a one-way relationship. And the fact that those sorts of capabilities are built into every single tool means that de facto, a lot of these groups act as extensions of arms of the government in, when, in the places where it matters. The, you know how, well, Vice on Twitter, when they're tweeting out this link to this article, they chose one sentence of the article to highlight in the tweet. Makes sense, right? Here's the sentence from the article they decided to showcase as the, the tweet, you know, and then they link to the article. This is a great example of how tech, and they're quoting the person I previously quoted about uh, um, big tech, you know, at the border. And all the, it's how, is it okay for these big tech companies to doing what they're doing at the at the border? Uh, this is a great example of how tech is not neutral. It's actually been a very key in building out a post 9-11 regime that criminalizes black and brown people. What? <laughs> Run, everybody. Google and Facebook, they're coming for you. Uh, Amazon's after you. If you're black or brown, they Amazon is after you. They are hunting you down in the streets. Run. Uh, I mean, wh Run, what are we supposed to do? The ring things and dodge the, the delivery drivers. And by the way, <laughs> yeah. if, if you've got a job at the, uh, the delivery warehouse with things. If you see rings, somebody bringing a package to your door, run! We've also got great <laughs> robot dogs are coming. The, of the border with them, <laughs> next to essentially the brand new warehouse with things where you can basically uh, sign up for our employee health care version that essentially allows us to basically get you an education while you're there. And by the way, I, you know what I think it is? is I, I understand people, there's a bunch of people, and we, you could include us as part of it, who are um, a bit fascinated with pointing out all of the weaknesses of big tech. Governments are doing it. We're doing it. Other journalists are doing it. Lots of people are pointing out this very long list of gripes and grievances with big tech. There's a big list, and lots of people are doing it. We're doing it too. I'll, I, I count me guilty. I'm guilty. We do it for all, every day here. But uh, I, I think the, this vice journalist has got wrapped up. They've included their own... Um, Focus, which is, work, is what, you're, what you're basically saying. They're they they're, they're jumping on the anti-tech uh, train, but they're taking it into some other part of the station that it doesn't normally need to go, to go into. Which is, I, I think, they are generally concerned with other issues when it comes to uh, racial injustice, and they're trying to uh, jump on the tech uh, bandwagon and and uh, connect those dots in a way that they just. It's a bit of a stretch. So that's, I, I, I think this that's up what earlier with things, but this is a very brief, I'll do it 20 seconds here. If the, uh, if they're going to basically um, criticize like, like, like a racial bits in tech, IBM and the Holocaust, the people that person that got Eisenhower into office as the president was literally basically the same guy as president of IBM. There is a long history of government and tech basically working together. In that case, it was basically to say president of IBM asking Eisenhower basically saying, don't don't put us in with that whole mess with there with things when we're documenting and talking and pointing fingers about who's responsible for all this. And by the way, that is not as well substantiated. I was trying to people look up Edwin Black stuff on that. I'm just saying that is one of the more obvious, holy crap, you don't even need to make it stuff up. You can basically look at, at history. The thing is that journalists are going, they're going, oh, look, essentially the AI algorithm classified as a person with different skin color as a monkey, rather than looking at the actual history of the industry, which has a much deeper, much darker, and actually a lot more substantial things on culture. 
but they always take the easy shots rather than actually doing the actual research on this, which is really sad because there's, Wait, can I, there's can I ask about there. nuance in, in what we're saying here and, and what's going on, just so I understand this. Okay, so uh, government is using those services, same as we said, they're using IKEA or Office Max or whoever, they're using them and a large amount of, and, they, and awarding them big contracts, right? Using cloud storage or something else. They're using their services. Does I mean, I don't think the article is saying that though, that Amazon is designing going after terrorists it's just that they're profiting from government budgets that are supposed to be no it goes one step further and says uh the (laughs) is it okay for these tech companies to doing these egregious crimes on the borders against brown and black people that's well i mean okay just to to be fair there was a statement that came out not long ago um i want to say like a week and a half two weeks ago from Obama saying that one of his biggest regrets was the free reign that he gave to the tech companies. Yes, I saw that. Right. There's some very great photos of that dinners. I think one second. You know what, though? I'll tell you what. He he didn't have a choice because I was watching when he was doing his fundraising campaigns. You know, during while he was campaigning to be his presidential campaign, he came to San Francisco and San Francisco threw a shit ton of dinner parties for him that friends of mine threw those dinner parties for him. He raised a shit ton of money from Silicon Valley that there was a a, a, a price attached to the, to the, that those checks, which was which is why he now says he regrets that he didn't do anything. He didn't have a choice. He took their money. But I think that I agree. I think that the big issue right now is that as we're moving into new phases of faster development with companies, right? So we have a lot of different technologies now. We're moving into additional phases of technology. I think all of these um, these different uh, companies and the uh, that are that are warning against it, and really the journalists is saying, "Look, we're doing this again." We need to look at what happened. I mean, they're kind of heralding, a, you know, a repeat. And I, I, I think that that is, that is okay for them to do that. I think it's warranted. It's something that, look, we, we see what happened before. Unbridled growth makes some good things, but also some bad things. So we have to be cognizant of that. And that's a fair statement. Tech repeats itself. This is one of the things that for people have been in it for a little longer and why they get a little more cynical is because literally the same headlines, the same technology, the same fundraising patterns, the same, uh, you know, like fake scandals that get repeated and the actual scandals go in the background with things. It repeats about every seven, eight years, sometimes less with things. And the thing about it is that it always has new words each time. And so the the, the way that the metagame works is basically referencing the last few times that it happened. And then because technologists look to the future and that constant focus for that gives the industry an incredibly shoddy, basically almost like amnesic property that's really amazing to watch. And so when you have these old geezers or whatever that can't find work in Silicon Valley, despite having worked in it for 40, 50 years, part of, part of that is because uh, they've got too long a memory. So when a manager says, we're going to get excited about this, and then they start handing out Kool-Aid for something, they say, we tried the last three times it had these issues, try it essentially this way. And they're like, no, 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 you need to get in with a new thing. And the buzzword bingo to constantly make something look new while the fundamental things remain unchanged. Uh, this is less my point. There's actually a Teal Founder Fund. They were saying, where's our flying car type kind of things. For them, the argument was that essentially we stopped innovating in the 60s. Most of the stuff we've done since then have been basically with how to make lights blink on screens and how to get people essentially to communicate essentially basically with something only slightly better than we got with the telefaxes back in the day. The thing is, because we have so much surface level changes, the underlying structure of society, the underlying uh, 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 relationship between citizens and government, the underlying communities, things, those fundamentally are more or less locked in. 
the thing is we can change a lot on the surface and you can take a lot of churn and make a lot of money with that. If you actually want to fix these issues, it often means going outside of tech to other industries or going outside of industries and working with policy or working with community building. And that's something that tech honestly would rather just have like a nice progression with a nice little quadratic growth uh, curve with making money for for your valuation to pa- pawn off the, the artist selling out to a higher bidder with things with the disruption. And by the time they have their exits, it, the money has been changed and you can repeat the whole cycle over and over again. It's very profitable to do so. But if you're actually looking to tech to solve social problems, you're you're doing it wrong. You have to go outside to basically make that happen. Wait, Chris, so, let me jump so in. Let me jump in with a different story. angle there, which is is just that tech tech plows forward with with creating new things and that have new impacts, and they keep going forward without understanding what those impacts are. And then we get somewhere where we've got privacy issues or AI issues or security issues or anything else, because they they keep plowing forward for the immediate goal without slowing down to look at the long term impact. Right? Well, no, so they know the impact. Tech, they were just warned against and they ignored it. That's I can well, certain decades of stuff warned against it. Certain their, their ethical group will warn their product group, and the product group is like, "Too bad, we want to push this out," or marketing wants it out. So certain, certain, but the, the overall impact is that the the company moves forward or the technology moves forward without without understanding or slowing down or or considering the long term uh, potential impacts. So, back so uh, there, there's hang on, there's kind of breaking news. I had three people all in a row, uh, all. Uh, tweet at me here in the in the past what ten minutes, and they're all tweeting essentially the same article. Uh, and this from the New York Times: A judge orders Apple to ease restrictions on app developers. The decision could have major implications for thousands of businesses that pay Apple billions of dollars each year. A federal judge on Friday said Apple can no longer force developers to use its payment system in their apps, a move that will allow companies to avoid Apple's commission of up to thirty percent. On some app sales, the order could upend the economics of the $100 billion online market and is a major setback for Apple, which counts on revenue from its app store to fuel its expansive profits. The order came as part of a ruling in a prominent legal case between Apple and Epic Games. So it sounds like Epic won their case here. And it shows a photo of Tim Sweeney, chief executive of Epic Games, arriving at the court in Oakland. Uh, the order came as part of the ruling in a prominent legal case between Apple and Epic Games, the maker of the popular game Fortnite that sued Apple last year over its app store policies. In the ruling, Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers, yep, that was the judge of the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of California, yep, in Oakland, said that Apple violated California's law against unfair competition, but she ruled in favor of Apple on other counts, including that Epic breached its contract with Apple. Yes, it did, and they know they did. That wasn't, nobody disputes that. Uh, when it allowed Fortnite users to pay it directly instead of via Apple inside of its iPhone app last year, of course. The decision could have a major ripple effect across the digital economy. If Epic prevails after expected appeals, companies would have a new way to avoid the App Store Commission, which runs as high as 30%. The change would be a boon to the bottom lines of businesses that say they are forced to share too much of their sales with Apple. Well, 30% to be exact. Epic is Epic has sued Google for the same issues with App Store commissions on its Android operating system, and that case is expected to go to trial this year. Last month, 36 states in the District of Columbia also sued Google for forcing companies to use its payment system in exchange for access to its App Store. Google's public response said, in effect, that Apple did the same thing. 
the Google's order takes effect in 90 days. Apple could seek to block the order before then. Apple and Epic did not immediately respond for requests. As I told you, it's going to be a whole lot more of these no comments. Every fucking article henceforth is going to say no comment because, hey, journalists, you fucked yourselves. You're fucking shady fuckers. And that's why nobody is ever going to talk to you ever again. That's why the past 10 articles I read in a row (laughs) all said... The the people in this article did not immediately respond to requests for comment. All of them. For, you can just print Apple, that Atlanta. on every article going forward. No one's yeah. ever talking to you again, journalists. Tyler, do you under, do you get it? Yes. What about all the juicy, juicy e-discovery that was happening with Apple and getting all their internal documents and public review and we're finding out all this other shit? I'm gonna, Who's going to sue Apple next? We need to have someone else to generate some good headlines. I'm going to go ahead and pat myself on the back for my prediction that Epic was going to win this case. So that seems more clear than ever here. So, so. is there a chance for clawback, Jennifer? Like going backwards in time and kick, taking 30%? Ooh. You could go to Ethiopia because they're in 2014, and then you could redo this whole case. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. No, anything they decide is going forward, Chris. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so I guess will, there'll be more comments coming soon but that, thank you to the three people who sent that all in there's just one last um, popular headline that we didn't get into today which is from the information they say they, have, they say they have sources that Facebook is developing a machine learning chip for tasks such as recommending content to users Okay, so that now brings us to the fun, fun headlines that everyone's tweeting in. I'm now caught up to uh, the past 21 hours. <laughs> so if you've tweeted in the last 21 hours, I'm just getting to it now. But here are my favorites of the past. Uh, since we met last time, Faraz sends one in that as buy now, pay later surges, a third of U.S. users fall behind on payments. The latest survey found younger consumers were more likely to miss payments. A third of U.S. consumers who use buy now, pay later services have fallen behind on one or more payments. And 72% of those said their credit score declined. A new study published by the personal finance company Credit Karma showed the study conducted by software firm Qualtrics surveyed 1,044 adult consumers in the U.S. last month to measure their interest in buy now, pay later and found that 44% had used these services. That's more than I would have thought, honestly. The usage figure was slightly up from a similar survey conducted by Credit Karma for Reuters in December, which missed payments, was down from 38%. The latest survey found younger consumers were more likely to miss payments. More than half of the Gen Z or millennial respondents, those born between 1980 and who cares. There has been a surge in the usage of buy now, pay later services, which allow consumers to easily split payments. Yep, we know that. The exclusive growth has led to dealmaker. Yep, we know that. Um, it's easier than ever to purchase an item and finance it without even thinking about the implications of the purchase. Yep, that's true. And it is, it's this disconnect between making a purchase and actually paying for it where consumers can get in trouble. Yeah, potentially, if they're given too much credit, like credit cards do, you know, like $5,000 worth of credit that most young people are not able to manage and they get themselves $5,000 in credit and spend 20 years trying to pay back and they can't. But 200 grand, but, but, that's different. 
most consumers who use buy now pay later services said the purchase was for 500 or less yeah that's because that's all, the only credit they're going to give you they're not going to fuck you like the credit card companies do they're only going to let you buy they're not going to let you buy something for five thousand dollars on buy now pay later because you have to earn that credit on each of your transactions and month by month how you pay it back and they're not really interested in getting you in the debt traps uh, that the traditional players are so on average low cost purchases were most common among gen z nearly half of which have used buy now pay later services for expenses of 100 dollars or less the survey found fair enough so the next one is from also from faraz a very simple one from bloomberg that sequoia one of the world's best vc firms ramps up focus on latin american startups after successful bets here it comes. Here comes Latin America, May. There's the headline we were waiting for right there, wasn't it? Well, we knew it was coming. The fintechs are happening. Now the fintechs are happening. Now all the other products and services can be built on top of it. And Sequoia going into any region is the key instigator into all of the other investors now starting to consider, you know what? I heard Sequoia's going into Latin America. What, what are you guys doing? You thinking about going down there? Yeah, I'm going to take a flight down there. I'm actually heading down to Costa Rica next month, you know me. And I heard, you know, maybe I'm going to meet with so-and-so. I heard there's a new unicorn, unicorn down there. This is, <laughs> it's the, this is just how it works. It's the China was really, uh, Sequoia was really one of the first into China and then India and they recently have done a deal or two in Africa, and now they're going down into... They, By the way, we're actually very late getting into Europe, to be honest. And um, with the exception of Klarna, they did fantastically well with Klarna. But um, now they're go finally going into Latin America. And Latin America, it's your time to shine, baby. You Here it comes. Uh, hold on tight. <laughs> I'm excited. I think it's fantastic. It's got a, a, lot, a whole lot of amazing potential down there. So... The next one's from Faraz from Bloomberg that home buying startup Orchid reaches the 1 billion unicorn valuation. Orchid, which offers cash to home buyers up front so they can purchase a new residence before selling their old one, raised $100 million to fuel growth. And <laughs> get paid now, sell later is uh, <laughs> Faraz cleverly's coining a whole new category get paid now sell later like for your house but um yeah orchid basically allows it's it's replacing mortgages essentially so note note to banks out there the fintechs uh, are starting to take over another one of your yet lucrative uh, arms of uh one in your swiss army knife which is the you know mortgage part they're going to take over the remittances and the mortgages and all kinds of loans and car loans and this and small business loans and this and that all of it they're going to take over all of it it's so and then blockchain is going to take on that with DeFi. blockchain yep. is going to cover all of that because you can do peer-to-peer -peer with um secured tokens yep. and so you'll be able to do reverse mortgages you'll be able to do um like loan shops and stuff like all those predatory lenders are going to be taken out of business it's awesome <laughs> Okay, so the next one's the Geophone next rollout to commence before Diwali in advanced trials now. And everyone from outside of India is thinking, what the hell is Diwali? Um, which is it happens to be November 4th. So just a little cultural translation there. The, the Geophone lights for everyone. Yeah. The Festival of Lights in India. It's a fan, one of the coolest. Festival. 
it's 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 beautiful and wonderful and it happens to be november 4th so i'll just translate the headline the geophone which a lot of people in india are eagerly waiting for because it's a full-fledged big sexy smartphone but in the incredibly price range of under uh for about 50 dollars it says the leak suggests it will cost 3,499 rupees, which is $50. So $50 for a full-on sexy Android phone. And that means you're going to have a whole, you know, India's got another 250 million people who are waiting for this phone. And that means uh, that's going to be a whole lot more. Well, maybe they come into Clubhouse. Maybe Clubhouse could do a deal and pre-install Clubhouse on that phone. So Go ahead, Chris. Do you think they're going to build in biometrics? So obviously Apple, you know, when we talk about the uh, facial ID and stuff like that, the uh, biometric part that uh, Apple's like baking in, right? Like they're going to scan your face to make sure it actually is the face on the ID. With these cheaper handsets, do you think there's going to be some challenges in proving people's identity and that ultimately, you know, no. you have to buy the expensive one anyway? No, it's got a decent camera on the front of it. It's pretty slick. I mean, it's clearly subsidized. I don't. I don't I, they're not going to have any problems doing the identity verification stuff, which I'm yeah, at, I think right. you're right. At this, that. Po- at this point, all the the high end and the low end are like ten percent apart. <laughs> Just uh, I mean, there's Xiaomi phones you can buy now for a hundred fifty, two hundred dollars that are pff, stellar. And those aren't really subsidized in the same way that this could be in India. Because um, so when, I, when I, I look at it, like those little chips, like the um, the uh, Vixels that do the face ID and stuff, those are like four or five mm-hmm. bucks. So that's already like 10% of a $50 phone. That's why I was asking. Tyler, do you think that India is subsidizing it because it might r- roll it out for ele- electronic elections or something? I don't. I'd Vinay. I'll, I'll I'll defer to people on the ground in India on that one. No, Geo can register here. So Geo can, Geo has enough and more cash. So they just want more and more people into their building their super app in the future. So they can give anything for free. Just uh, you know, when they launch Geo uh, 3G, they given uh, internet for free almost for a year. I think one GB data or two GB data for a year before they start charging. And that killed most of the internet companies in India. And regarding Chris Crescent, uh, camera is very important in India. Uh, you've seen the number of users in Facebook and Instagram from India. That also means uh, you know people are taking a lot of photos, high-end camera. So I don't think Geo will compromise on that camera thing. Okay, thank you for the additional cultural context on that. The next one's from Evan, sends in this one from Bloomberg, that a solar startup born in a garage is beating China to cheaper panels. That's quite a big headline. Uh, Australia-based SunDrive has made a materials breakthrough that promises to increase the efficiency and lower the cost of solar panels. Uh, I'm You have my curiosity with this one, Bloomberg. And it shows a photo of it about seven years ago. They started in a garage in Sydney, and what else? Uh, did it, they mass produce it. I, I, I imagine they're not going to give away the true secret sauce in this uh, Bloomberg article. Uh, they received a $2 million grant from the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. 
about 95% of solar panels are constructed out of photovoltaic cells made from wafers of silicon. To pull electric, electrical current from the cells, you typically need to, to fuse them with metal contacts. Silver has long been the metal of choice because it's easy to work with and very stable. Solar panel manufacturers rely on screen printing process similar to that used to place designs on t-shirts, pushing a, th a thick silver paste through a mesh and onto their silicon cells in a fixed pattern. If you've ever seen a solar cell up close, the faint thin lines running across it are the metal electrodes. Solar panel makers now consume almost as much as 20% of the world's industrial silver each year. So I, let me guess, these guys figured out how to do it with something other than silver. Copper also oxidizes more easily, which Im impacts its ability to conduct current. The University of New South Wales has a long history of solar technology breakthroughs. And Alan, one of the two founders of this company, zeroed in on this copper conundrum at the heart of his graduate studies. Instead of working at the school's labs, however, Alan thought he could conduct experiments more quickly by building an R&D setup in his garage. There you go. He's using copper instead of silver. And he very cleverly didn't do it on the university's labs. And he did it in his own garage. And that's why he's going to be a fucking billionaire. And the school uh, is not going to be able to sue him. So well done, Alan. <laughs> You're going to be a billionaire. You figured, I hope you patent that to hell and back. Uh, so the next one is from Evan. Speaking of solar power, a solar powered aircraft developer named sky dweller arrow adds eight million dollars series a partners with uh oh oh no things were looking so good for this company they just partnered with palantir of course i'm 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 jesting um that's probably fantastic for them and i'm, I'm just wondering what the hell palantir has in mind with a solar powered aircraft maybe it's collecting data uh like cameras geospatial data let's see here airplanes and drones today regardless of size and fuel type all all face the same limitation eventually they have to land sky dweller arrow the u.s spanish aerospace startup wants to break free from that constraint by developing an autonomous solar powered aircraft it says will eventually be capable of perpetual flight their pitch which helped them raise 32 million dollars has led to an additional 8 million oversubscribed funding the company has also entered in a partnership with Palantir to use its Foundry Analytics platform to process information at scale and onboard the aircraft designed for telecommunications, government operations, and emergency services. Palantir is the best at creating value for your data, whether it's putting data into their systems to create operational insights or how they may fly our aircraft, putting data into the, uh, un in to understand the sensing systems that are coming off of our aircraft, blah, blah, blah. So... Skydweller will be generating a lot of data. The company's focus on three data-rich markets, telecommunications, geospatial intelligence, there it is, and government surveillance, which is where the money is. So they're doing both, the really clever one on the geospatial intelligence and making, you know, doing a little double dipping, getting a little bit of that cheddar in the back pocket, you know, from Uncle Sam, Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe, do a little government surveillance, little... 24-hour, you know, flight time, you know? We got this glider, Joe. This thing is solar-powered, autonomous. You're going to love it. I, I Skydwell. What's up? I have a guess regarding how they can bind up with, with Palantir, and it would be a benefit for both of them. The thing is that, that imagine that you have a solar glider that passes uh, or goes in circle around London, for example, 
and all it does is it samples uh, yeah. it has antennas uh, jaggy antennas pointing antennas pointing down picking up all the wi-fi signals all the mobile phones all the bluetooth ids it can detect and actually plot you where you are where you're going and um, so so you can actually sample uh, location of people a few holes from uh, that was hilarious one of the other dogs you okay uh yeah yeah the puppy is okay as well <laughs> but that was noisy as hell <laughs> sorry for that who who won the fight uh, probably the elder dog. He is only five yeah. months. The the pup, and the, the other okay. one is nine. So it was a traumatized. Get him. Get him. Get, get him on some VR post traumatic stress disorder. You know VR treatment. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you understand. That's right. But my, my drift by just having antennas listening and plotting. What do you see below yourself? You would probably be able to do some really really crazy shit with big data. You and up. Okay. Um, was, there, was there was someone else that wanted to jump in on this? Kevin, I invited you, and Tom, I've invited both of you up, but it seems like you're not able to. You might have to jump out and back in. So, uh, anyway, that's the solar-powered autonomous plane that just raised some money. And then the next one is Google is under investigations by the EU for forcing Android devices to be pre-installed with Google Assistant, report says. The tech giant's AI-powered voice assistant debuted in 2016 and has been a default feature of the new Android devices since 2017. Yeah, exactly. You think they're not going to include Google Assistant in their phone? You think Apple's not going to include Siri? Google's facing another antitrust investigation in the EU. Investigators are said to be probing the dominance of Google's voice assistant on Android devices. The block has issued the tech giant almost ten billion in antitrust fines. Oh, they're just they're just getting greedy now. They've just found another way they can find them. Well, this got to run back to the piggy bank. We need some more money. Hey, we need to we need some more uh, money. Anyone got any ideas how we can get some more money? I don't know. Maybe we could find Google again. I don't, they're probably good for another five billion. I think we could get them for you know. I don't. What can we get them for this time, Ralph? I don't know. Well, maybe we could get them on this whole... They have the Google Assistant. And they seem to only have their own assistant. Not They don't have Apple's assistant on, on their phones. And they don't have Alexa. So, hey, antitrust, let's go get them. Five bill, here it comes. You know what's messed up about it, though, Tyler? They, the, the companies do the things to us. And then the governments collect the money. And then we never see the money for the bad thing that got done to us. Google's facing another European com competition investigation, this time over the dominance of its voice assistant on Android. Uh, okay. the thir On Thursday, Sam Wicken, managing editor of regulatory news service MLEX, tweeted that the tech giant faced another investigation from European authorities over possibly forcing device manufacturers to use Google Assistant as the default voice assistant on the Android devices. A Google spokesperson told Insider, wow, Google actually commented, holy shit, I'm eating my shoe. Android provides more, more and you got to love how insightful this uh, Google spokesperson is. Android provides more choice than any other mobile platform. 
Manufacturers can choose which voice assistants to install on their devices, and users can also choose which assistants to use and install. The EU Commission de- the EU Commission declined to comment. Okay, so I was half right. So Google Assistant, equivalent to Siri on the iPhone, has been the default feature on most new Android d- devices since 2017. Earlier in 2021, EU Competition Chief Margaret Vestager signaled she was unnerved by the dominance of a few voice assistants on the continent. This well, by, hey Margaret, maybe that's something to do with Article 22 in the GDPR, which basically made it. Uh, uh, that regulation makes it really rather difficult to build an AI. Uh, Maybe that had something to do with it, Margaret. Maybe that's why the EU doesn't have any leading voice assistant companies, Margaret. Maybe maybe go look at your own Article 22 of your GDPR. In the EU, Google Assistant, Amazon Alexa, Apple Siri are the leading voice assistants, she said at the time, adding that there are concerns about default settings and pre-installation on voice assistants. Well, there should be a concern about you regulating AI out of the EU, uh, but the EU has already fined Google for anti-competitive behavior, including search, shopping, and, and Android, three three times in three years for $2.7 billion in 2017, and for $5 billion in 2018, and for $1.7 billion in 2019. It's time to go back to that cash drawer. It's time to, we got to go ring that, ring that cash register just one more time, Google. Hey, Google, we didn't get you in 2020. We're double. We're going to make up for it in 2021. We got you again, this time on your voice assistant. Don't worry, we'll get you back next year. Don't worry. We'll be back again. That, that well's got plenty of water left. We're going to keep wetting our beak in this endless pool of free cash. Uh, thank you, Google, for helping fund the EU. We appreciate your business. And why can't we get a... Hey, hey, Sarah, why can't we get any voice assistants in, in Europe? Oh, never mind. Okay, so the next one is that... Thailand, France 24 sends this one in. The, a Thai device texts for coronavirus in armpit sweat. The scientists adapted a device usually used to detect toxic chemicals in the environment. For Bangkok market sellers, the armpit sweat soaking their t-shirts during a humid monsoon season may contain subtle signs of coronavirus infection, local scientists have said. Thai researchers are developing a sweat-based mobile virus detector and road-tested it on shopkeepers at a Bangkok food market this week. Here's the quote. From the samples, we found that people infected with COVID-19 secrete very distinct chemicals, said Chadin Kulsing from Bangkok's Chulalongkorn University, which is one of Bangkok's best universities. We used this finding to develop a device to detect the specific odors produced by certain bacteria in the sweat of COVID-19 patients. Chadden, who said the test was 95% accurate, hopes it might be rolled out as an affordable alternative, more expensive swab tests that require lab processing. It is, however, still in the developmental stage, and the research behind it is yet to be published or peer-reviewed. The scientists adapted a device usually used to detect toxic chemicals in the environment. Subjects placed a cotton swab under their arms for 15 minutes before the swab was put in a glass vial and sterilized with UV rays. Oh, that's the hard part is how to, you have to be able to clean the thing to test somebody else. The technician then draws an appropriate amount of the sample using a suction hose and pressurizes it into the analyzer to check the results. Some collection, sample collection takes 15 minutes and the results are ready in 30 seconds. The sweat test received the thumbs up from Bangkok market vendors who said that it was a much more pleasant than nostril swab test. Well, hey, the, the, the ladies selling the pad thai in the food market approved. 
So the, the sweat test is more convenient because I get to work while waiting for the results, says 43-year-old watermelon seller told AFE. <laughs> oh, I, I can see the face of the watermelon seller right now. With the PCR test, I'd have to be at a testing center, sit and wait for the results, and it just wastes my time. Thailand battling its third and worst COVID wave reported 16,000 new cases Thursday, taking a total taking the total since the start of the pandemic to nearly 1.34 million. So as somebody who lives in Thailand and loves Thailand and, you know, uh, um, I have a, a, a very special place in my heart for Thailand and Thai people. This is a country that builds scarecrows in front of their houses to scare away the coronavirus. So, um, <laughs> the, bar, the, the bar for medical, um, Yes. <laughs> uh, so take everything that anyone's doing with a with the biggest grain of salt you can possibly take a salt shaker of salt uh, and just spread it all over this article. Um, but it's it, God bless them, and uh, they're trying something new, and that's it's nice. Uh, it's fun to see Thailand in, in a tech news article. Bless their heart, right? Pretty much. Bless bless your sweethearts. Uh, JD, good good hearts. So the next one is from, I love, the, I, it's funny, I was imagining the Pad Thai sellers, and sure enough, the quote is from, an, they say, from a watermelon seller. They don't even say the person's name, in part because if you use actual Thai people's names, they have the longest, most complex names of all people on the planet. They all have very cute, short nicknames. But if you're, at, if you're a journalist and you write their actual technical birth names, they're usually incredibly long and complex. Um, so very cute that they called it the watermelon seller uh, for that quote. The next one's from BB from South China Morning Post. It says Chinese AI firm pushes Siri claim to stop Apple's iPhone production. Oh boy, what's happening? Chinese AI firm seeks to stop Apple's iPhone production. Sales ahead of new device launch next week. Shanghai Xinjiang Intelligent Network Technology, also known as Xiao Ai Robot, continues to push its nearly decade-long patent dispute with Apple over Siri. Apple's expected to launch the new iPhone 13 line and other devices in the U.S. at the event on September 14th. A Chinese artificial intelligence firm has asked Shanghai court to stop the production and sale of Apple's iPhones in China over a long-standing patent dispute involving virtual assistant Siri. Around a week before the world's most valuable company launches the latest update to the flagship smartphone, Shanghai Zhizhen Intelligent Network Technology, also known as Xiao Ai Robot, uh, last Friday applied to the Shanghai Higher People's Court for a preliminary injunction to ban the manufacture, sale, and export of iPhones containing Siri that infringe on its patent, according to the Chinese company statement that it was posted on its official WeChat account on Tuesday. Xiaowai Robot's chief executive, Yan Hui, said in the statement that Apple did not respect its intellectual property. Oh, this is rich. <laughs> China accusing Apple of intellectual property theft. Now I've heard everything. Um, the Apple should immediately stop the infringement, take down and stop selling the related products. The statement came a few hours before Apple with a market capitalization of $2.59 trillion. Jesus, they're already halfway to $3 trillion. 
uh, so at $2.5 trillion, uh, as of Wednesday, announced a special event on the U.S. September 14th when the company is expected to launch its latest iPhone 13 line of other devices. This event, like Apple's other product launches since 2020, will be held online. Responding to a request for comment on Wednesday, an Apple spokesperson referred to the company's previous statement issued on August 2020. Basically, tell, basically no comment. Told you. Um, when it refuted the allegations in Xiao iRobot's patent infringement lawsuit that sought 10 million, they're seeking 1.5 billion in damages. And Apple responded to the lawsuit, and that's what Apple is referring to South China Morning Post to. Apple's not making a comment; they're just saying, "Go, you can go see what we said already," in the in the in the lawsuit response. So it refuted the allegations. Simple as that. And here's what Apple said at that time. It says, Siri does not contain features included in their patent, which relates to games and instant messaging. Independent appraisers certified by the Supreme People's Court have also concluded that Apple does not infringe Xiaowai Robots technology. Xiaowai Robots' latest filing for a preliminary injunction con continues its nearly decade-long legal dispute with Apple over Siri. The digital voice assistant is currently deployed on the iPhone, iPad, MacBook, Apple Watch, and HomePod Mini. In June last year, Chinese Supreme Court ruled that Xiaowai Robots' patent was valid after multiple legal battles with Apple since 2012. The Chinese company first applied for its patent, described as a chat robot system that can compete that can complete conversations in natural language in 2004. It was granted the patent in 20, 2009 before Apple first integrated Siri with its iPhone 4S model in 2011. The injunction, if granted, would not bode well for Apple's amb ambitious new launch. <laughs> <laughs> which has prompted main supplier Foxconn to ramp up recruitment of assembly line workers at the world's biggest factory, iPhone factory in the central Chinese city of Zhenzhou. But Tyler, Apple's, I just want to add something on this. Uh, back in one more paragraph. I'm on the last paragraph. Apple's Asian supply chain is expected to initially produce an estimated 90 million units of the iPhone 13, up from the initial batch of 80 million units for the iPhone 12 last year. So, wow. So another 10 million, even more, another 10%, according to Dan Ives, manager and director at the investment firm Wedbush Securities. Ives said Apple is targeting to ship from 130 to 150 new million new iPhones in the second half of this year. Go ahead, Jean-Francois. Yeah, back in the days when, they, when Apple's bought Siri because it was SRI uh, company uh, in 2010, they bought it for uh, an amount around something $200 million. Uh, what, I, what I remember is that this technology was based on Nuance Communication uh, Company, the system that they used back yes. in the day. So, yes. uh, like, there's no point at it. If there was a, if there was something bad surrounding this, it would be Nuance that would be like really the the, the one that like the, the the bad. Thanks. Thanks, speaking. Right. Although, I, in by the way. Here, here, let's get a little conspiratorial, shall we? It, we, we? We've been known to do this once in a while. Where's where's my X-Files theme? What if America's cracking down on Chinese tech in a very, very big way? And there's not a whole lot of America tech in China, ex with the exception of Apple. And so what if... Apple became a political pawn in this uh, uh, growing te tech tensions between America and China because China recently 
wrote a editorial piece in one of the government uh, newspapers, and it kind of sent shockwaves throughout China that it was one of the most read articles uh, in, in recent days or weeks or months that is from basically Uncle Xi warning that America is fully kneecapping China's tech and um, what if they decide to retaliate and put Apple in a position to not be able to manufacture or ship phones and what if they did it precisely three days before their launch event so what if this uh this court case comes down Monday and their events on Tuesday. Interesting to see how this could happen. Well, I think that's uh, that's not far-fetched. I mean, look at what they are doing to Canada, right? I mean, it's the Huawei thing and Canada was following the rule of, you know, repatriation of like agreement globally, not just with the U.S., but then now China is using other methodologies. Holy shit. Yeah. I, you, you cannot make up this next headline. I swear to God. It's from Evan. I'm tweeting it out right now. Here it is. South China. Watch this. <laughs> South China Morning Post. Here's the headline. Dated September 9th. You, uh, South China Morning Post is from China. Here's the headline. U.S. penalties for technology sales to China have soared this year. Commons. Commerce Department officials say. Jeremy Pelter of the Bureau of Industry and Secretary tells Congressional Advisory Panel China deals have led to nearly $6 million in penalties and fines. U.S. is also developing common export controls with allied nations to further restrict Chinese access to sensitive technologies. Precisely what Uncle Xi was telling the Chinese people that America's basically figured out that we're doing corporate espionage and stealing all of the technology and they've, they're they on to our game and they've cracked down. And they are. And we've seen the headlines here recently that the FBI is very active in Silicon Valley trying to tell every startup in Silicon Valley, lock your shit down because the CCP is trying to steal all of your shit. That was the headline we read two weeks ago. Did we not? We did. So, if, um, if the U.S., is using the FBI and every possible source to try and lock down all of the corporate espionage, which, oh boy, are the Canadians and the Swedes very intimately familiar with how China took down Nortel and tried to steal everything from Ericsson. And so now everyone's realized, ah, uh, you know, China's been stealing all the intellectual property and, uh, you know, corporate espionage and whatnot, and they're now taking a very defensive posture against it. And now Uncle G's warning, ah, shit, we're not going to get A's on the test anymore because the 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 the, the kid we were copying from uh, realized we were copying his test. So uh, they made out that was the big headline that was in China last week was get ready. It's going to get really tough. Um, things are going to get rough. The billionaires got to start spreading the wealth. We got to have common prosperity and. What if they retaliate on Apple? And uh, Messi, you bring up a fantastic point. Look at what they did with Canada over the uh, Huawei's CFO, Meng, who was being held in Canada. And there's a trial going on in Canada to decide if she should be extradited to the, yes, to the United States. Uh, long story short, of course she's going to be. It's a mock trial. There's no point to having the trial. Of course they're going to extradite her to the U.S. In response, China is arresting 
and for giving a lifetime prison sentence in a very retaliatory way and they're not even being shy about it they're even making it hint hint wink wink you know if you want your canadians back you know don't send our person to the u.s send her back to china i mean they're being really obvious about it so they're not they have a bit of a record of playing that kind of a game of tit-for-tat diplomacy and that's my point. What if this Apple thing turns into, you know, we're hijacking Apple uh, or you pay up or, you know, you let go of Huawei, you know, whatever else. So it's going to be very Apple. Apple needs to be careful. But by the way, Apple's really quickly moving into Vietnam. And, and I think this might be related. Cheryl? Is it related to why Uncle Joe and Uncle C had a conversation today? Oh, ho, 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 Cheryl. Oh, shit. We started out today by Cheryl saying, hey, just a weird little announcement nobody seems to have picked up on. Joe Biden just scheduled a video call with Xi Jinping for next week. He spoke today, I think. Oh, for today. So, And we don't know what it's about. Very interesting. Well, see, Maybe Apple yeah. to told Uncle Joe. CNN to prevent unintended conflict, that's what they say. Actually, the, the meeting agenda will focus on the tensions between the two countries and what's happening and all those things. That's how they left it as just a general <laughs> agenda of tensions. Okay. There you have it. Yeah. Okay. So next one up is... From Evan from the New York Times, AI can now write its own computer code. That's good news for humans. It says the new technology called Codex generates programs. And this, we watched this live. Is this dated today, New York Times? Was September 9th. New York Times, what are you doing? What are you doing? So this is about OpenAI's Codex. Uh, which we watched the actual live stream announcement in real time here with John Francois and everybody. Remember John Francois? When was the Codex it's launch? Not, let's let's look up the date. Ago, four weeks ago, we're probably now at almost version two of it. <laughs> right. So it was on August 10th, and we're now on September 10th. So it was exactly a month ago. So. Um, New York Times, why are you writing a headline that says AI can now write its own computer code? We discovered that during the actual live stream on August 10th. Everyone else wrote their headlines that day. We discussed it in real time as OpenAI team was sharing it on a live stream on YouTube from their HQ. What are you, what are you doing a month later? What's the point of that? Yeah, we know we know this, New York Times, from, from a month ago. That's month-old news. Okay, so the next one is UK Health Department to end contract with Palantir. We covered that. You And then Evan sends in this one that says, America struggling to keep up with other countries in exercise. I, well, we didn't know it was a, a, a race. So if, we, if we're going to turn it into a, an Olympic sport, then, you know, we're going to have to flex and win the gold. But... Uh, America struggling to keep up with other countries and exercise general health during the pandemic. New global survey shows that Americans aren't losing weight or feeling as energized during the day as much as as much as others from around across the world. Yeah, that's because we got all the best TV channels to fucking sit around and all the best snack food. 
Can you blame us? You guys have ho-hos and Twinkies? I didn't think so. Do you even know what a Pop-Tart is? You have no idea. You know how... And and by the way, we have the biggest TVs, we have the most crazy content, and all the best delicious snacks. So forgive us if uh, we're not quite losing the weight as fast as everybody else. You with me, Evan? You know what, Tyler? It is literally what you just said. My husband and I have been in Africa for the last, I don't know, seven years. And it's time we're in Ethiopia. It's just that even if you want junk food, you can't find junk food. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Messi? Messi, were you trying to say something? I'm a little busy with my bag of Doritos right here. So we can't. Even my husband is like, oh, my God, I feel like chips today. And we can't find it, really. So we are so healthy. It's just full of healthy food. And then we went to the U.S. And of course, we got stuck for a year and a half because of COVID. We both gained a ton of pounds and pounds. And it's just like eating chips and just we're like, oh, my God, the pandemic. and, And it's just it's crazy. Everywhere you turn is like junk food um i mean we even go for shopping and we end up just picking up a ton of things so it's very hard to avoid it so it's that's how we learned how living in different places actually just by by the the sheer chance of living in it you you just yeah you don't avoid it yeah yeah so americans uh you know as usual we're number one in falling behind on health. So um, the next one is from Evan from Reuters that paid influencers must label posts as ads in Instagram. Yeah, a German court has ruled social media influencers who receive money from companies to promote products must clearly label such posts as advertisements uh, according to a, ger- a top German court ruled on Thursday, if the influencers are not paid, they can show products without the advertising label. The federal court of justice ruled in the cases of three influencers on Facebook, social media site, Instagram. Influencers with thousands of followers can earn large fees from companies to promote a product on Instagram. The court said one fitness influencer should have been clear she was advertising when she paid uh, to promote a brand of jam. However, it dismissed a case against a television presenter and influencer, Kathy Hummels, who posts about a stuffed toy that led people to the manufacturer's site. She had not been paid for the promotion, so was not obliged to label it as an ad, the court ruled. Instagram last year reached a deal with Britain's Competition and Markets Authority to crack down on hidden advertising by influencers on its photo and video platform. So does this just apply to Germany? Reuters, come on, Reuters. I guess it does. Social media influencers who receive money from companies to promote products must clearly label such posts as advertisements. Okay, there you go. The next one is from Katerina, that living sensor probe mysteries of the gut. Oh, a living sensors probe the mysteries of the gut. Research into the human gut and the microbes Key to its work, the gut microbiome has boomed over the last decade or so. And now uh, there's living sensors 
probing the mysteries of your gut. And you, it's a wearable magnet. So you swallow these magnets and it uh, can investigate. It can probe. It can probe you. The next one's from Joe Williams, that Tesla obtains patent on its wild idea to use lasers as windshield wipers. Tesla has actually managed to obtain a patent on its wild idea to use lasers to clean debris off of the vehicles. We are basically talking about laser beams. And then the next one from Amanda says, tech growth comes at irrational price for investors, according to Reuters. Uh... Yeah, Reuters says, according to some chancellor, chancellor says tech comes at irrational price to investors. What the heck is this? Who's this chancellor and what do they mean? So overwhelming is the desire to find the next Google, Amazon, or Facebook that investors are chasing growth at any price. Just about any software company offering cloud-based services now commands a nosebleed valuation. The discount rate by which these enterprises are valued makes no sense. By buying loss-making businesses at exorbitant price tags however investors set themselves up for extraordinary losses technology bubbles tend to form when investors project the returns from an earlier generation of market leaders onto new ventures thus the english channel mania or english canal mania at the end of the 18th century was inspired by the great profitability of the bridgewater canal completed in 1761 what the fuck are you going on this rant about the current technology bubble is no different for nearly. Yeah, no, it's actually quite different. But it says for nearly two decades, the share prices of Amazon, Google and Apple and have compounded by more than 20 percent a year since their IPOs. Tesla, Netflix and Facebook have seen their stock prices increase at an annualized rates of around 60, 40 and 30 percent respectively. Over the past year and a half, tech stocks delivered the bulk of the market's returns. Now they account for a third of the MSCI All Country World Index, a higher level than at the peak of the 2000 Internet mania. A generation. Well, by the way, after 2000, you all were in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. You guys were just laughing, laughing your silly asses off saying tech was a big joke and it's a bubble and it's gone and bye-bye and what a scam. And now you're saying, oh, it's it's bigger than, you know, it's the biggest thing on on the market. And it is. And we as the geeks knew it was, but you were laughing on our faces when the market blew up in 2000. So it, the article continues. A generation ago, investors like Fidelity's famed fund manager Peter Lynch popularized the investment discipline of buying growth at a reasonable price. They even gave up the acronym GARP, today, which is growth at a reasonable price. Today's investors buy growth at any price. Animal spirits are not so much directed at the estimated tech giants. Alphabet, Facebook, and Microsoft traded around 50% premiums in the U.S. stock market. The valuations don't appear reasonable. Uh, what, get to your point here, journalist. What, what are you trying to say here? Inve- instead, investors have their heads in the clouds, otherwise known as software as a service sector. Oh, that's clever. The BVP NASDAQ Emerging Cloud Index has been up some 300% since its inception in t- October 2018. Okay. A new valid- valuation metric known as Rule of 40 proclaims that a business whose combined sales growth and cash flow margin exceeding 40% is a bargain. Based on this measure, it would make sense to buy a stock whose revenue is projected to double in a year, even if losses ran to half of the sales. At current valuations, they will have trouble delivering. Earlier this year, the Australian investment team at TDM Growth Partners estimated the median cloud company 
uh, to have grown of earnings of 30% annually for 10 years in order to deliver an acceptable risk adjustment. Okay, you're getting a little deep in the woods here, uh, journalist. A study by strategist. No, we're not going to read your study by some strategist. Extravagant valuations applied to growth companies aren't confined to the cloud. True. You can have enterprise companies. Uh, they talk about Peloton. Okay. Tesla is the ultimate reality distortion machine. Back in 2015, Tesla uh, executive Elon Musk proclaimed that the electric vehicle maker would grow sales by 50% a year for a decade. At the time, Tesla's sales were $6 billion. Okay. Tesla's valuation implies that it will dominate the market for electric cars. But as investment management associate CEO Vitaly, who cares what who he is, points out that the element of time is ignored. Today's extreme valuations derive not just from the elevated expectations about exciting new technologies. Ultra low interest rates have corrupted the discount rates needed to value companies. He actually has a decent point hidden in there somewhere. Investors appear to be applying a lower discount to uncertain returns in the distant future than to more immediate gains, a practice known as hyperbolic discounting. In Star Trek, no, we're not going to talk about Star Trek. You're getting fucking weird again here, journalist. Stop stop, stop being silly with this article. Um, and then they talk about Tesla's share price has more than doubled, but those wormholes were, will close one day. Really poorly written article here. You, if you want to, if this is the problem with journalists trying to write about tech from Reuters by someone who's not a geek, geeks shouldn't write about tech. You, you just, and they should certainly shouldn't write about the business of tech because it's really foreign to them. Um, so, you know, they, they struggle from a similar phenomena that, you know, people don't go into politics, like real geeks. Don't go into politics. There, I, I can't think of one. Amy Klobuchar is the closest, and she has some understanding of tech, which is fantastic. There's a real notable lack of any legit geek in any political sphere in America, and, and globally for the most part. That's because we don't want nothing to do with that, that whole shithole mess. Nor do we really want nothing to do with the shithole mess of journalism. And so that's why there's very few geeks, legitimate geeks, in journalism. There are a few. There are some fantastic ones. But uh, they don't work at Reuters. So forgive Reuters for trying to write an article about tech growth. Uh, and they just struggle to grasp uh, what's going on with the growth of tech. But that's okay uh, because they should be focused on the lack of growth of journalism. It should really be their focus here. But the... The next article is from Damalier from The Guardian. A study links too much free time to lower sense of well-being. Research shows there's a sweet spot and a subjective well-being drops off after about how many hours? Oh my goodness, what a perfect opportunity to play our favorite game, Tech News Jeopardy. Watch out for Messi. She usually wins. So the question is... Research shows there's a sweet spot in the amount of free time that somebody should have. Over X number of hours, the subjective well-being drops off. Two hours. After how many hours of free time? Two. Four. Zero hours, if you ask my wife. Nin 19 hours. One minute. Goddamn Messi won it again. What is going on, yeah, Messi? Yeah. Why, why does Messi win every time? This is really bizarre. Yeah. I'm sure. 
the answer is five. They said two. Somebody else said whatever. You said four. You won yet again. Well done, Messi. This is truly unbelievable. The score is now about seven to one, 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 one. Everyone else has one. Messi has seven. That's how weird tech, tech news jeopardy. <laughs> That's weird. That's wild. Messi, you're weird even for me now. <laughs> you're amazing. Okay. So the next one is from Katarina that the mu COVID variant outbreak in Florida uh, as hundreds of cases detected now. The Delta variant remains by far the dominant strain, and mu only accounts for 0.2% of the total cases. But the mu COVID variant outbreak in Florida has hundreds of cases detected now. The next one also from Katerina from USA Today. Afghan allies in hiding executed in the street. This is the one I was looking for. You remember when we were talking about this, when Professor Asif jumped in hot on the mic about the breaking news? about um, how they caught somebody in a Manchester hotel who was quarantining. He was a, a Afghan commando. And I said, well, I had just read articles earlier today about somebody being executed in Kabul. Here it is. USA Today from Katerina. Let's take a little looky-loo here. It says, Afghan allies in hiding now because... Uh, Executed in the street, Jewish people know this haunting story. We were told on Tuesday the Taliban dragged all males aged 10 to 65 from their homes and executed them in the street. Children murdered just for existing. The what, what? Biden administration must finish the job. We were told on Tuesday the Taliban dragged all males 10 to 65 from their homes and executed them in the street. What? The clock is ticking as an American Jew a rabbi and the CEO of an organization trying to get the families of our staff out of Afghanistan. The bell tolls with every passing second. The C Oh, are they recounting? Is this a recollection of what Tyler, happened previously? I, I, I said the, the, yes. the, um, uh, the last um, Jewish person to leave Tal uh, yes. uh, was yesterday. Uh, no, he left. He left two months ago. The, the news is from uh, Reuters or... Um, uh, I don't know. I can't remember now. But yeah, I've got one. I'm reading one right now from USA Today from September 9th, which is right now, and it talks about the clock is ticking. An American Jew, a rabbi, and a CEO of an organization trying to get the families of our staff out of, out of Afghanistan. The bell tolls with every passing second. The season of reflection and reconciliation is upon us. Our names are being inscribed for life or death. Americans must make good. Honor pledge and take concrete immediate actions and get these Afghan families and allies out. President Joe Biden must direct his administration to create an expedited, expedited process to evacuate them. This is a moment where we cannot wait until all the details are worked out. I can't imagine how terrifying it is to to have been for those left behind to see the gates of Kabul airport shut and the last flight leave knowing they will face the dangers ahead. The last member of Afghanistan's Jewish community left the country this week. That's really weird because he said he left two months ago. Well, it says on AP News, it says yesterday. This is getting very bizarre. He has done lots of interviews over the years. And he's he's been branding himself as the last Jew in Afghanistan for ever since the Taliban was there 20 years ago. So he was the last uh, Jew in the, at the, and he lives in the synagogue. I've see, watched videos of him. I've seen him do multiple video interviews and he brings people into his house slash synagogue and he says, I'm the last Jew of Afghanistan. And he explains why he's not leaving because he wants to, he, he wants it to be known that Jews were in Afghanistan and always have been. And he wants, he never, 
you know, if somebody leaves, then there will be a period in the history books that shows there were no Jews in Afghanistan. So he wants to do it kind of for the historical record that technically Jews were always in Afghanistan. So, but I read headlines two months ago that he left. And there were people lamenting that know him that were saying, ah, shit, how unfortunate. And he said the Taliban, when, the, when it looked like the, the Taliban had not even come into Kabul yet, this is two months ago. And he's like, he can't risk it. He can't risk it this time. It's too close. And he swore he wasn't going to leave. And then that's why I was so, it was so obvious and on the tip of my mind. I was like, oh, shit, he's leaving. I, like, I know who the guy is. I know his face. You know, like, and he swore he would never leave. And then now, uh, um, and it was even before America had totally left. It was like three days before uh, the American military left. Anyway, the never forget in a call. As Jews, we know the story all too well. We know that our staff feel helpless. They've been working tirelessly to save 123 people, many of whom have family members on our team. 73 of them and children are forced to play. Blah, 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 blah. As a Jewish social service organization, our reaction to this crisis is urgent and familiar. There are painfully obvious echoes. We never forget the call. As Americans, we have a moral obligation. All people to face. We we will be judged by our actions. What is the actual plan to save lives? This must not be reduced to politics. This is the most difficult article to read I have ever seen. It it the the paragraphs barely they're barely legible. It's really bizarre. But um the last paragraph says each of us should feel as if we're standing before the gates of receptance a repentance this season as the ram's horn blows a final time as we seal in the book of life and death let us never forget that we can give our allies a chance for life as well the mission won't be complete if we leave our, it's just a really bizarre article so it's, it's hard to grok what's going on here but the headline says afghan allies in hiding executed in the street jewish people know this haunting story oh you mean from the past because that's a little uh intellectually dishonest to be putting out a headline today about Afghanistan and executions in streets uh, and allies. Hi, this is a very super confusing contribution. Uh, so I'm going to let that dog lie. Tyler, and Tyler, yes, that next week is yes. that's the holiest day. So that's what they're referring to when he says we know things in the past. Right. So it's not necessarily mm -hmm. about Afghanistan. It's about the Jews suffering in the past. Okay. Well, that's more, isn't that more, that's more Pesach, that's yeah. more Passover. I think for the, the, they had a definite Yom Kippur call out for, um, what was it? it he, they said in the holiest. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, I get it now. I, thank you for this. I got it. Okay. Yom Kippur is the holiest No, I get, I, yeah, no, I, I, I'm super familiar. My point is the, the, I'm just. The actual headline from USA Today, which is one of America's biggest publications, says Afghan Afghan allies in hiding. I'm sorry, <clears throat> Afghan allies in hiding executed in the street. I read that and I assume, okay, there's Afghan allies that are now in hiding, and that somebody's been executed in the street. That's not what this person's wanting to communicate at all. What they're what they're trying to communicate is that. Uh, <laughs> that they're trying to, as you said, tell the the, the story of the the difficulties of that Jews are familiar with, and they they are uh, about 
it's an opinion piece. Uh, it's an, yes, I know. I understand it's opinion. That's that's part of the problem. Is I, I I when people are writing articles about Afghan allies in hiding, I assume that to mean there are now allies in because the last article that we just read was about uh, you know Afghanistan allies need or need to be. Uh, very careful about their data and their hiding and you know that Taliban's coming after them and you know dragging you know knocking on their doors and we read those headlines every day so my mind was just in the normal literal interpretation mode of when it says afghan allies in hiding executed in the street i took it at a very and on very little literal level and it was not that's not what this article is about at all it's about jewish people know uh, the haunting story of people being executed in streets So they're familiar with the concept of people being executed in streets. Okay, got it. Yes. Make now I now I understand. This article has nothing to do with uh anyone being executed in the streets of Afghanistan. Okay. So the next one's from Reuters. Bill Gates investment firm to take control over the four seasons hotels for two point two billion deal and a majority share. Bill Gates Cascade Investment LLC is taking control of the Four Seasons Hotel and Resorts by buying about half of Saudi Arabian Prince Al-Walid bin Talal's stake for $2.2 billion, the hotel operator said on Wednesday. Cascade will acquire half of the billionaire's prince's stake in the Four Seasons, raising its ownership to 71.3% and valuing the hotel chain at $10 billion on an enterprise basis. Prince Al-Walid through investment vehicle Kingdom Holding, will continue to own the remaining stake four seasons, said in a statement. While the prince owns stakes in many companies, Citigroup, da, 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 da. Interesting. I didn't realize Bill Gates had basically owns the four seasons. The next one's from Newsweek from Katarina. Children dying very quickly as mysterious fever kills over 60 people in a week. The residents have died from an illness in six districts located in the state of Uttar Pradesh in India after it was first detected on August 8th. So, uh, Renjant, is this the mysterious um, thing that came from the well near your uh, your part of India? Is, is Renjant with us? No. Children dying very quickly. A mysterious fever kills over 60 people in a week in India. The deaths have prompted the area's chief minister... Uh, to order an increase in bed capacities in hospitals. Uh, they've asked the health department in the state to conduct a detailed investigation into the illness, which has been described as a mystery fever by local newspapers. According to the BBC, the patients seemingly infected with the illness have suffered from dehydration, nausea, joint pains, and headaches, while some people have complained of rashes spreading across their legs and arms. Of the people who have died, none of them have been tested positive for COVID, while physicians in the region have suggested that it may be dengue fever. No, <laughs> it's not dengue fever, which is a viral infection spread by mosquitoes that is common in India. And in the space of a week, the illness has been reported in the districts of Agra, Mathura, Mainpura, Eta, Kasjanj, and Firozabad with doctors in the region reporting patients coming in with a decline in platelet counts, which can be a symptom of severe dengue. That's true. Dr. Nita from, uh, told the BBC that the patients, especially children in hospitals, are dying very quickly. 
The principal and dean of the Autonomous State Medical Hospital in the region told the Hindu that although some of the patients are testing positive for dengue fever, not all of them are. The cases rose suddenly in the last five days, and 90% of them are children. Many of them have tested positive for dengue, but there are others who have shown a drop in platelets but have not tested for the viral disease spread by the mosquitoes. Meanwhile, when confirming that 40 children had died in the district, um, they claimed that waterlogging, lack of sanitation, and hygiene are the reasons behind the disease spread. The Independent reported that the response to the mystery behind the cause of the illness, which was first detected August 18th, said that the investigation will be carried out with teams formed to conduct a probe. Due to lack of awareness at the local level, the patients will be taken to private hospitals and clinics, the reporter said. After learning about the fever, the the health department and administration appraised authorities of the situation at the state level. Directions have been issued to ensure adequate manpower at medicinal colleges. And so now you've got 60 young kids have died in a week of a mysterious fever. And they die very quickly. Um, I can't answer whether it is or isn't, but I know there is talk about it being the same as the um, of the zoonotic virus in uh, in Kerala. But I I'm gonna actually message one of my colleagues uh, in UP and, and try to find, see if there's any new actual intel on the research front on it to see if they've figured it out yet. Yeah, let's hope so, uh, and let's pray to God it's not mosquito. Yeah. Uh, well, even, transmitted. Even, I remember the conversation the other day about about um, bats, and then somebody's like, "Well, can't they just figure out a way to, you know, kill all the genetically engineered kill these these bats?" So the problem with the problem with killing bats, especially if the the particular bat in question is um, a large percentage of the overall bat population in a region, is that they're, they're the biggest killers of the mosquitoes. So like, right, you, you get rid of one, and you fuck up the ecosystem for the rest. Yeah. So Dr. Fram sends in this one from MSN that the golden age of Silicon Valley's iconic perks is over. That may not be a bad thing. The pandemic ending many tech companies' iconic perks causing many tech workers to re-examine their priorities. And and then Willie, who joins us uh, usually every day here in the audience, sends in this one that Google and Shopify team up to help 1.7 million small businesses small businesses, uh, and they help them merchants to, what does it say? Companies launch platform partnering to offer e-commerce marketing solutions as part of new Shopify features. Shopify invests in Israeli e-commerce. Oh, oh, I see. Small and medium businesses account for 95% of firms and 67, 60 to 70% of employment. They are projected to bring in a large share of digital advertising revenue. And that's the main quote from the article. But the headline is Google and Shopify team up to help 1.7 million small, medium businesses reach more customers. And that's why I'm an incredibly happy shareholder of Shopify. And the next one is from Evan. Biden to order federal workers to be vaccinated as part of a new strategy to combat Delta variant. President Joe Biden on Thursday will unveil a new strategy to to combat the Delta variant amid rising case numbers and falling poll numbers for his handling of the pandemic. I think everybody's heard that. Apple wants to build health sensors into future MacBooks is the headline from Evan. And devices like Apple Watch and iPhone come with various health-related features. For example, the iPhone can count the steps you've taken 
And however, it seems Apple's health initiatives aren't stopping there. A newly discovered patent has revealed that Apple could be considering building health sensors into MacBooks. The patent describes how Apple could build sensors into the surface of the MacBook where upon placing the wrist or palm, it can activate a sensor to measure a user's vitals. The biosensor um, can uh, user and the health metric is the latest of the heart rate, respiratory rate, blood oxygen level, and blood volume estimate or blood pressure. That would be amazing if it could get your blood pressure from your palm on your laptop. I, that would Next be a stretch. But we'll be doing uh, all kinds of things. So with health. And then we went through that one. Tech, tech growth comes at irrational price. We covered that. AI now writes its own code. We covered that. BB China AI firm pushes Siri. We covered that crazy one. So we're there. So now up to the last 22 article hours, which we are going to save for when we meet for our very special Saturday meeting tomorrow at the same time zone when we started today. And we will go all through all the tweets as long as it takes. That's what we do on Saturdays. And because there's not a whole lot of big popular tweeting headlines but we get to go through all the tweets and we i have 22 hours to go now plus another 24 hours when we get here so i'll have nearly 48 hours of tweets to go through when we join again tomorrow so i hope you do join us and uh have a wonderful weekend happy friday everybody tomorrow's the 20th anniversary of 9 11